on um, is such a treat because, you know, like if only walls could talk, I think we all would, would like to know what's, you know, what's being, what's happening behind closed doors at Golden Auction House, who's buying the cards, um, you know, the, just the, the, the temperature for demand and the, the getting it some insights, all that is great. And, and I think that Ken is a, is a great figurehead for the hobby. Um, you know, I, I've talked with him many times and, and I always find him to be somebody who not only understands the hobby very well, but I think um, has a great business mind. And I think he understands kind of the economics and the uh, landscape of where the hobby has been in the past. And I think where, where it's going in the future. Yeah, because, you know, he, he like he said, he's been in this thing from the beginning. Well, not the beginning. He's been in the hobby since the 80s, even earlier, I think, uh, with his father. And, you know, did you did you appreciate his, you know, like he, he just he just says what he's thinking for the most part. I mean, you can see that. And as he mentioned at the end, in term, when I asked him about uh, managing his image, you know, he's got to be careful what he says because he knows he has eyes on him. But it's more or less to to manage expectations and not be sarcastic when someone watching might know he's sarcastic did you find him to be as just forthright as i did absolutely i mean i think he was i think he's always very uh, i think one of the things about ken is that he doesn't pull punches i think he he speaks to the truth i think he goes right to the point um i've always thought that and you know there's always going to be people that, uh, you know, that get a lot of attention that are doing things that with that's going to, with great success, is going to always come people criticize or, 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 you know, they may critique, um, you know, him and, and, and certain aspects, but, you know, in my opinion, you know, what Ken's done for the hobby is, is, you know, huge. I mean, w he's brought attention to this hobby, um, mass media, um, he's really done a great job of putting these products in front of the world. Uh, whether it be on CNBC or whether it be through, you know, all the PR that's been generated from his auction sales and from key items. And in that time, he's tried his best, I think, to educate people. I'm sure he has his own interest, but it's all for the it's all been for the betterment of the hobby and all the the attention and all the new people that it's brought in and all the increases in value are all great for collectors, I think, long term. And you know, um, I'm grateful for, for, for Ken and I, and I, and I always look forward to hear what he's saying. I, I look at it as a, it was just an awesome treat, you know, and you did such a great job of, of serving him up some good questions and Thank I know you. it's late for him and for you too. I, so I yeah, you know, he, he told me, uh, yesterday when I talked to him, he said, he said, you know, so how long do you want to go? I said, well, I'd love to go two hours with you. He said, yeah, he goes, I could probably do an hour. I said, all right, but I'm going to squeeze an extra half hour out of you. Right. And right. I mean, we went for yeah, an hour and 30. Was, I know. But yeah, he was getting pressure from his wife. <laughs> yeah. His, right. We yeah. went for a good hour 35. So I, I'm, 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 I'm happy that he was able to, to, that I was able to squeeze that extra half hour. And, the, and even the, the bonus five minutes on top of that out of him, because as you could see at the end, it was just like, I just wanted to whip off a few questions that I had teed up and I didn't want to not get to ask them. So I'm glad he stuck around for sure. So I did ask you earlier today, I said, Chase, what, please watch the episode with Ken, pull out a, you know, take a couple notes of a few of the, 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 the topics we talked about, a few, a few of the things he might have said that really stuck out to you, and let's discuss them on after hours and just kind of do a bit of a deep dive. But before we do that, so think about what you want to talk about. We're going to say hi to the people we have that have joined us, and then Great. we're going to dive into that. Sound good? Awesome. All right. Global Sports Card Investor. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that was an awesome, awesome interview too, Global. 
Thank you very much, Latrell Sprewell. Uh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I, I must say that was a lot of fun for me. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a lot less – I'm just going to say it was a lot less stressful than, than, than the show uh, last Saturday for me. Uh, and, and I think it's because the, there, was, there was some negativity in the chat but I nipped it in the bud right away. It's not, you know, my show is not a complaint department. It's not where you, it's not where you come and complain uh, about my guests, uh, you know, service, customer service, but it is where, you know, if you know, I have, if you know that I have a guest coming on and you have an issue with their business and you want me to address it during the show, and this is going to be a new thing for me now. Um, I want you to reach out to me on social media and let me know ahead of time. And I'm going to throw it up there. If you're, you know, send me a, a message on Instagram, Twitter. I'm best on Instagram, but Instagram, Twitter, even through Facebook. And, you know, let me know. And I know there's not as many people watching right now, but hopefully people get the message uh, and we'll do that. But, you know, it was it was much less stressful for me tonight uh, because there wasn't a lot of negativity. And the one bit that I did see, I just nipped it in the bud and, and muted that that individual and said, you know, I'm just not we're not going to deal with it and plug up the clog or plug up the chat with that stuff. All right, D Cabral, great to see you. 23 Aranis, who has uh, had some great comments. That was an awesome interview with Ken. He essentially showed some epic mantle cards, dropped the mic and took off. What a badass. Yeah, that was great. Hockey Cod, great to have you. Thank you so much. Jeff McMahon, great show with Ken. Looking forward to After Hours. Great to, yeah, me too. Always looking forward to After Hours. Benny Wu, 86 Fleer Jordan is not rare. There's over 300 PSA 10s. Price will settle down more. Yeah, I, I disagree. I think 300 PSA 10s is rare. Um, you know, as Ken said, there's more than 300 people willing to spend a half a million dollars. And, and also we have to keep in mind that the population doesn't equal the available amount of copies. There's the there's the population and then there's the float. The float is the are, are the ones that are actually available or, and I'll even go as far as saying, are going to become available. Not everybody is willing to sell their PSA 10 Jordan for 720,000 or 500,000 and not even a million dollars. So I think it's still a rare card at uh, at three at a pop of 315 or whatever it is. Absolute, welcome. Great show. What would you say is the biggest difference between this week's and last week's guests? I'm not going to answer that specifically. I'm just going to say that um that uh, the biggest difference uh, for me was that this was a, an easier show to, to manage. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. We got name in the house. Good evening, name. Will there be an after hours, after party on Clubhouse? I cannot deny that I will probably be on Clubhouse after Chase and I are done here tonight. I might just be listening, but I'll certainly uh, be there. Chase, what do you think? Will we be on Clubhouse after? We're, we're usually on Clubhouse. <laughs> we're usually on Clubhouse. Good yeah, point. Good point. It's, it's, a, it's a very Jeremy, addictive platform. It is. It is. Jeremy Pringle, uh, thank you very much. Hello, Ziggy. Uh, thank you, uh, Charles from Card Canucks. Benny Wu, Jeremy, your great live show. Love everything. Thank you, Benny. Really appreciate that. Cardboard Max in the house. Thank you, big unit. Appreciate it. S. Sanderson to Orr. I'm glad Ken is a regular guy who has a boss to answer like many of us. Yeah, I think now he's got, you know, investors, a board of directors, that kind of thing. Peep says a sophisticated collector would be a sweet band name. That's I like that too. The sophisticated collector. That would be a good band name. Very, very much so. Ziggy says, I'll reach out. I hope you'll ask harder questions too. I appreciate your interviews. Yeah, Ziggy, I'm going to choose the questions that I ask. Something else that, that everybody needs to understand is that I'm not here to interrogate my guests. That is not my function. If you think it's my function and you don't like the way I conduct my show, don't watch it. It's very, very simple. You don't need to watch Sports Cards Live if you don't like the questions I'm asking. 
Um, I will, if you send me questions, I'm going to vet them and I'm going to decide whether or not they're going to be asked on the show. Uh, I think that's just only fair. And, uh, you know, it, it, it allows me to continue to get the caliber of guests that I get by knowing that, you know, if I, if I allow a guest to be attacked and someone else says, hey, should I go on Jeremy's show? They're going to say, well, I got attacked on it. Do you want to go on it? And they're going to say, I don't think so. So keep that in mind when you, uh, with respect to your expectations on me as the host of the show. I think that's only fair. Dave Kaplan, good evening to you. Name says, I'm with you, Jeremy. Best to be respectful. Your guests are taking time out of their day to come out for us. Their interview, thank you. I appreciate that name. Cardboard Max, when Ken talks, it's time to listen. No doubt. Colin Murray in the house. Sports card seller. Good to see you. Terry Fortune, House of Jordans in the house. Good evening, House of Jordans. Clubhouse Kings, that's that's Chris, as I'm sure you know, Chase. He's uh, calling, well, you're the clubhouse king, Chase. I'm just there for the ride. Rocco Rosado, good evening. Happy to have you on After Hours. Toa Hang, great to see you. Thank you. I appreciate that. My buddy Darcy in the house. Darcy, good evening. Great to see you. I can't wait to see those hockey inserts that you've got. Joe, the late show, hobby talk at its finest. Thank you, Joe. D. Cabral says, you, your show is perfect the way you do it. I appreciate that, D. Always, you know, always good to hear the, the positive feedback. Keeps me going. Toa says, I thought it was a great show. Jeremy does a great job walking the line on questions and getting information for us in the hobby. Much appreciated. Rocco says, the questions you ask the guests are good for us. Keeps the hobby on an even keel. Thank you very much. And big unit. Tough to keep getting good guests if you waterboard them during the interview. So you guys, you guys understand. I appreciate that. Benny Wu, I'm sticking to water tonight, Chase. You got a drink on hand? Uh, I got some Celsius here. So... Yeah, I'm rocking with the Celsius. Helps me on the late night with the energy, so. There you go, there you go. Sanderson Doris says, gotcha. Journalism deserves no respect. And Name says, I'm not sure if this is the first time Chase is on or not, but glad he's here. He's a, well, yeah. This is a Name for, who's on Clubhouse quite a bit uh, in, in the rooms with us. So Name knows what he's talking about when he refers to Chase there. All right, thank you everybody for joining us on After Hours on Saturday, April the 10th. My guest on After Hours, our guest on After Hours is Chase Rhymes. And Chase is a guy that this is the first time we've communicated like face to face, even virtual, like face to face virtually. But we have communicated a ton verbally, audibly, virtually on the Clubhouse app. And if you if any of you aren't on there, uh, I recommend it to, to a lot of you. It's been a lot of fun and really great high level type of discussions. Um, it's a positive sort of environment, but it's a realistic environment, I think. Is that fair to say, Chase? Absolutely. I mean, I encourage everybody that's in cards to try to participate, at least dip their toe in the water, get into some clubhouse card, sports card chats for anything, just for the simple fact of like being able to connect with other hobbyists. I think one of the best things about the sports card hobby allows people from all over the world that tend to have similar interests to connect and, you know, have friendships, have relationships, help each other debate topics that we're all interested in, you know, it's so great when you can find a room full of guys that are going through some of the same things that you're going through when in this, asking themselves some of the same questions that you're asking yourself in regards to cards or sports. And it's just, a, it's such a great way to meet people and connect with people. And I think that we all know that that's one of the, probably if you could argue the best thing about the sports card hobby. I mean, what other hobby on earth allows you to just make friendships with a common interest with people from all over the globe um, whenever you want to. Uh, and I think we know that like the sports card culture and people within the sports card hobby tend to always be um, people that are, you know, ha are similar to us in a lot of ways and more so than they're different. And I think that we can connect and bond and, 
discuss things and it's just it's fun it's fun and it's informative it can help you make decisions with your collection but it can also just be a great escape from from the world and um just great kind of banter and 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 discussion so i encourage anybody to get on there yeah so there's a bunch of questions coming in about it i'm going to get them a sports card review wants to ask are any relation to busta and i'm sure you've been asked this a million times yeah we we, we look a lot alike i mean yeah we get that we get that a lot i'm sure he probably gets the same thing you know yeah any relation to any relation to chase they ask him right yeah when i have my dreads it's a whole different there you go. Sports card seller says hi to Chase Victor Rios. Good evening. So Dar- my buddy Darcy said, sorry, says, what's Clubhouse? Um, I'm going to get to that. Uh, Terry says, do we still need a special invite? Um, card Canucks Charles says, I tried getting in. It says I need an invite. Dave Kaplan says, is Clubhouse still invite only? Uh, Jose Prado says, uh, Clubhouse is a live interactive podcast on steroids, which is true. That's a very good description of it. And Sports Cards Review is laughing his ass off. So I'll, I'll, I'll quickly explain that, Chase, and then we'll get into uh, – so we'll, we'll dive, dive into some of the Ken Golden content from tonight. So, guys, yes, Clubhouse, it is still invite-only, and that's just because they're, they're, they're scaling slowly so, they don't, so their servers don't go down. Uh, but here's the thing. All of us that are on there, we have invitations that they give us. They give us like three at a time, I think, is how many I get. But I've I've sent some out there and they've never been acted upon, so they're kind of like stale in invitations. But if you, if any of you who've asked me before want one, I I I can tell you right now how many how many invitations I currently have available, and I'm happy to send them to you. I currently have um, five. I've got five available right now. So Terry, Darcy, Charles, David Kaplan. You forks, I remember you all. Like you, let me know, and um, I'll give you all one. I got one left for someone in here. If you want it, I'm happy to uh, happy to give it to you. For me to send you that invite, I need your cell phone number, and you you have to have Apple. It only works on iPhone. Doesn't work on your laptop. I, I think it will work on an iPad, but it only yeah, Benny Wu. It's only right now Android. It just won't work. It's only on Apple. So until I'm sure eventually they'll scale it out to work on Android as well. But for now it does not. Okay. Yeah. So if I have any as well. I don't know how many invites I have left, but if people DM me, I'll, I'm happy to invite them. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great format. Um, it's interactive, uh, creates a personal connection. You can actually get and inter- actually, you know, interact, like uh, talk to each other, et cetera, that, you know, you can't do on Instagram. It's different than DMing and et cetera. Yeah. So to the, to the guys that I mentioned, um, you know, as long as you're on Apple, as long as you're on iPhone, send me a, a message on either text me if you have my cell number or message me on Facebook or Instagram and I will and give me your cell number if I don't have it and I will send you the invite after after hours and then you can come on tonight if you want. Okay. But it's 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 a lot of fun. Uh it's just it, it's just it's addictive. I've been on it late every night like last night till 1:30 I think. Oh my gosh, my wife wasn't too happy about that. Okay, guys. Chase, let's get back to what we're here to do, and let's let's debrief that episode a bit more. So, what was a couple of your big takeaways? Any like awe-inspiring moments? Anything that were you were surprised to hear? What do you think? Ah, oh, man, so there were so many things. I mean, I can just kind of go through, not in, in order, but um, I think Ken's comments, like on on grading card companies, were kind of spot on. I think one of the things I noticed when some of these new grading card companies launched, I saw some pretty pretty eye popping prices. And I just 
think that that was premature. And I think that you have to very, you have to use kind of a lot of skepticism when you're looking at those prices, because, you know, there could be other interests at play, like the people that are um, stakeholders in those grading card companies, for except, et cetera, that, you know, may want to bid those up. And, you know, we saw a big LeBron refractor go for one, in one of those companies for a huge number and a nine and a nine point or a 9.5, I guess it was. And, and, you know, the lineage of, of grading card companies that have been around for a very long time that have earned their brand over and earned their trust of, of collector base carries weight. And when we buy a sports card, yes, we're paying for the card. Yes, we're paying for the condition of the card, but we're also paying for the authority that says what condition that card is in uh, just as much as we're buying a brand of tops Chrome, for example, or whatever the brand is upper deck, we're also buying that brand of that grading card company. And, and there's a lot of trust in a brand. You know, when you buy, you know, um, a certain watch and it's a certain brand, people have a lot of faith in that uh, watch maybe to work and, and, and for et cetera, that brand has some trust or some prestige with it. And, you know, that's a real thing. And I think that that cannot be created overnight and be very careful about that. That was one thing that I think I totally agree with that he pointed out. Um, just going kind of one by one. I mean, Ken talked again about um, about kids having access to the hobby, uh, which I yeah. thought was a really huge topic that's kind of come up in a lot of clubhouse chats. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of movements that people have, have had to try to engage the conversation of keeping kids engaged with cards. And, and yeah, I think that's so important because when you look back at the history of cards, right, the reason I'm here today collecting cards is because I was able to get into it as a kid. And we, a lot of us were, and have that kind of connection uh, and have that experience. And I look at myself as I know Jeremy does and a lot of collectors like, like Chris and Josh and uh, from cardboard and, uh, you know, some of my really close friends, uh, Brian Shulman. I mean, th these these guys really care about cards. And I think more, even more so, I mean, we all care about our card prices. We all care about all that stuff. But I look at the card hobby and, and wanting it to succeed as kind of my my main focus. And, and you know, and I, and I think that that's a long-term thing just as much as a short-term. There's short-term issues and there's long-term issues. And kids being able to be engaged in this hobby and us rem remembering that, you know, that, that we, they, need to, they need to be able to have um, an experience with cards and have, uh, be able to have fun and be able to have access to, to quality product. Um, I think that was a real important thing he touched on. Um, certainly when he jumped into buyer profiles, I thought that was fascinating. Um, I think we, you know, we know about the international market, but getting to hear kind of specific numbers on that. Um, him talking to specific examples of, of certain buyer profiles and, and, and kind of breaking down, you know, kind of who they are and, and what their backgrounds are and what they care about um, is real important, I think, for us. Because as much as we talk about, you know, supply and pop reports and things of that nature, the, the big question mark, the thing that we don't know a lot about, you know, is, is demand and, and how that demand really breaks down over the you know, the whole market, you know, like he mentioned a thousand buyers over buying cards in the, in the six figures or even the million dollar mark. Right. Um, you know, I tend to agree with him on that just because I've looked at the numbers and I, and I kind of feel like for the, for the price support that that's there, that's the kind of demographic that we're looking at. So, you know, when I, when I, when I hear that, it's, it's very, I thought that was fascinating to kind of hear that, that data, um, on that stuff. And, 
you know, talking about his new auction platform, uh, you know, and, and some of the, the intricacies that are going to go along with that one uh, is fascinating to me. I mean, um, you know, I, I often think that th this market with a really robust infrastructure can do things that we really can't perceive happening right now because it's not there. And so like when he mentioned things like um, having an outlet for every, every, every item that you ever consigned at, at auction that got sold to a seller, being able to have a direct line of communication with that, um, with that buyer of that product uh, in the future so that you could contact them and you know exactly, you know, have a direct line. So you can say, hey, you know, you bought this card uh, six months ago and it says you're open to offers and, and I want to make an offer. Well, that is huge because it, it opens up the, the, the ability for people to land on cards uh, when they when they want to and have that ability to kind of open up an entire supply um, that's there that people don't right now have good access to. I mean, the, the infrastructure for finding cards is very rudimentary right now. You know, you have to scan Instagram and go through collections and try to find and pinpoint and remember that, oh, this this card lives here in this guy's collection. And maybe it's not even available. Maybe he moved it, you know. Um, and, you know, Heritage has a platform for that, but it's not executed very well. I mean, most 99% of people that I know myself included that have tried to use it. It's just you, you send the messages they never get responded to. You know, it's obviously not something that, that, that Heritage has made a priority to keep up to date with. But that, that one little thing right there could be a major game-changing thing for the hobby if it's done correctly. And yeah. there's all kinds you know, of... Yeah. I, just, I was going to say that, like, uh, PSA, you know, with, through their set registry, I get... I, I, I've got a lot of cards on the registry. I get emails week i'd say once a week from somebody i don't know saying you know just wondering if you're interested in selling your collection and i don't it's not that i'm i don't mean to be rude but i just don't really respond because it's like it's unsolicited i'm you know if i want to sell it i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna find a way to sell it i'm gonna but i mostly it's just not for sale but they do that as well and pwcc also i get messages from emails from them i'd say once a month saying you know, uh, we have an, a buyer interested in purchasing this card that you bought from us back in whatever year. Are you interested in selling? And so, I mean, sometimes I, I say just oh, actually every single time I've received that email, I've said no, because the fact of the matter is my cards aren't for sale. But there was one card where recently I said, OK, sure, here's my offer. And it was like way more than I than I would ever get for the card. But I was just like, oh. I'll test it. Right, you know, I'll sure. test it a little bit, right? Because right. again, I'm not asking for these offers. I and but there, I will say to both the credit of the people who have contacted me through PSA and PWCC, they're very polite about it, and they're not assuming that your card is for sale. They say, "Hey, just checking. You know, in the event that you are willing to sell it, would you consider an offer, sort of thing, or what would you want for the card?" And I think that's that's respectful. Yeah, I mean, there's no harm in someone being able to take make like to take an offer. Like, you know, it doesn't mean that you know it's it, you're going to be open to selling it. Maybe even that process would be very successful as if you're making offers, like that. You know, because people are right not actively shopping it. But you know, there's what's the harm in having a, a communication um, open, right? Like, there's just doesn't seem to be any downside to me. So why not have it? And yeah. and I think that like that that's one thing that he talked about there and. He mentioned other things like pricing algorithms. You know, he kind of he kind of put that out there, and that's something that I know is very important. Um, and, and and I know that you know there's funds, there's auction houses, a lot of private companies that are working on building pricing algorithms that uh, are very accurate uh, for 
you know, assessing price, but also predicting value. This is a very important thing in the hobby. Um, and we're in the very, you know, it's, it's, we have great guys, guys at Card Ladder. There's guys doing great work in this space, um, but it's, but they need time. I mean, they need time. I mean, like when Google built their algorithm, for example, I mean, it, it, it was, there was constant iterations of that algorithm and updates every single quarter, you know. Aren't there still? Aren't there yeah, still I, I, 20 yeah, years all, later? Yeah, all the time, all the time. And it's constantly being refined and updated, right? And, um, and it's light years from where it was, you know, 15 years ago, but it's, it's always a work in progress. But it's certainly each, you know, there hasn't been enough time for these guys to really dig in. They're still just building the foundation pieces, but there'll be, you know, that's 1.0, there'll be 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0. And we've talked a little bit about this last night in the after hours um, with Chris and Josh and that, you know, they're, they're, they need to build that foundation first. And then the next steps will be, you know, tweaking things to add those nuances and those intricacies that affect value and price that we know are there, but it's going to take time for, for, for that infrastructure to be kind of set up. But we need transparency in this market because like Ken pointed this to this tonight, he alluded to manufacturers making things less confusing. We want things to be less confusing for new people coming in. We want product, we want price. It doesn't have to be simple and boring, but people need to be able to understand it. When you have a new market, like we're a new market and we're very new uh, in terms of our maturity and our maturation process, there, you know, there's still a lot of gray area because the infrastructure for creating transparency just hasn't been fully built yet. But if you can imagine a world in which it is um, built, I think people can see, um, you know, where this marketplace can go. And I think we're see we've seen iterations of that, you know, in the beginning phases, obviously fractional ownership, um, funds, uh, card ladder, pricing algorithms, auction, new auction house formats that, 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 that are forming. I mean, all of these things um, are great for the hobby, but yeah. we, but there's still, we're not even, we haven't even approached 2.0 yet. I mean, even the marketing side of the hobby is still in, in 1.0, as great as Ken has been at doing digital and, and traditional PR and getting a voice out for the hobby. I mean, the manufacturing companies have not even really scratched the surface of where the marketing can go. Um, auction houses still have a ton of marketing. I mean, we know Barstool Sports is an investor, right? I mean, think about their network and their infrastructure if they want to leverage that. I mean, the, the marketing aspect of this hobby has not even really been tapped into. It's really been still built organically. Yeah. So when you really look at things, I, I, I just, I, I implore people to think about how far this hobby can go with an infrastructure and with an advanced, with, it, with advances and things like marketing, et cetera. Um, so, you know, that makes me very bullish that we've come this far with such a, you know, a rudimentary, uh, infrastructure. Yeah, man. You know, I agree. Like I, being, being in Canada and being a hockey guy, I do see like upper deck has rink board advertisements on, on, at uh, the hockey arenas and you see them at the all-star game. But how, you know, and, and they also do a good job um, selling their cards on uh, at Tim Hortons. You know, the, I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with, with Tim Hortons down in Houston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, good, good, good. I mean, they do that. And that's an entry-level set for kids for the most part, I believe. You know, no, I won't, sorry, I, I take that back. It's an entry-level product. It's an affordable product. But kids of all ages enjoy that product because it's a fun set with some cool inserts. So 
they are out there getting uh, getting you know doing some marketing that way but it would sure be nice to see more across the hobby i agree with you um i liked his answers to both of the questions i asked at the end uh you know what can the card companies do to improve the hobby and what can the grading companies do as well uh beyond turnaround time so Okay, no, I appreciate that debrief of the episode. I, I thought it was great. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the algorithm talk. Like sometimes when I'm doing the show, I'm just I'm I'm distracted. I don't even remember him saying that. Like that's the I I must have been looking at yeah. the chat or something. So I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, it's one of the things I just I just picked up on, and I've and I've actually talked to Ken, and I've had great conversations with him and some of the guys that work there, um, Ross, the CEO, and stuff. And um, you know, I know that they they've kind of talk to me, talk to me about some of the stuff that they're doing. And, and, and I just kind of, I'm really fascinated with that team. And he talked about that team that they put together there. And I think that, you know, at its core, I mean, the future of the hobby is the people involved in it. Right. And, you know, when you look at some of the guys that he's bringing in there, I know from the tech world and the tech space, you know, very, very um, uh, capable guys that, um, you know, that are capable of kind of building a good technology um, they understand the marketing side. They've got the investors that have the, the kind of the network to to, to create awareness. You know, I, that's the kind of the word I think is key. You know, we, we want this hobby is a great I mean, this hobby is a gold mine when you look at what it what the, the satisfaction that it brings oh, to, yeah. to you. And that's it's very it's very um, uh, it augments our life in such a positive way, not just from the, it's not the cards. The cards are a big, I love, I love cards. I love looking at them. I love owning them. I love sorting them, scanning them, everything I do with them. Right. But it, the community is second to none. I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 the, it's a really wonderful thing in terms of the algorithms back to that for one second, you know, card, uh, you mentioned card ladder. And I think when you're talking about algorithms, are you talking like with respect to the, the, to card ladder, they do the predictive values a lot of the times, right? For many cards, sure. Is that right? Is that what, in terms of val, in terms of valuing cards, is that kind of what you think Ken was getting at in terms of like like predicted value to a degree, the way card ladder does it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's not just predictive value. There's also assessing value, which is hard, especially with rare cards that don't move a lot. If a market changes, is changing as as rapidly as this one does, and you have a card that's been sitting over here while the market's been doing this, you don't know what that card's going to do at any given point in time, right? And so you have to have some kind of a model to predict that and to assess that, especially if you're talking to someone about consigning it, about what they may get for the card. Um, or if you're if you're consulting people that want to purchase the card about what kind of value they would be comfortable paying for it, right? Or maybe if you're an auction house yourself and you want to invest in the market, right? And yeah. maybe you want to take advantage of some of these opportunities, which I would if I was if I was in their situation, right? And so those models are critical for that. And if you look at the equities market or you look at other markets, I mean, they've got advanced modeling for value, right? I mean, they have black box modeling that can that can that they've built. That they can predict, you know, uh, what accurate values are, or I should say, discrepancies in values within split fractions of a second, so they can make trades to kind of um, take do arbitrage or to, or to um, you know, capitalize on some of those inefficiencies in the market. So, you know, transparency of price and value is critical. And right now in the market, if you're if you're if you're paying attention, if you're if you're studying, if you know what you're doing, and you're you're, you're educating yourself, you have an advantage in the market because you can do that. You can do what's not easily accessible right now 
buy software or because it, those, those models just haven't really been completely refined yet, even if they're being built. Right. Just imagine Google's algorithm for search when they first launched it. I mean, there was tons of stuff that just they was it wasn't pulling in right on the first page that was relevant. It just did, it wasn't it was, you know, easy to game and manipulate when it was first built right through um, Black Hat SEO because the, the algorithm didn't know how to police for that. That's what these these pricing algorithms are going to have to go through. They're going to have to go through the iterations of that. And but it is it is very critical because essentially what those things, what those algorithms are doing or what we're trying to do as astute collectors or investors, however you want to call it, you know, in the hobby by trying to say, hey, I really think these cards are great for me from personal satisfaction, but also from an investment point, uh, investment standpoint long term. But what is the correct value to pay for that? And where do I think that that's going to go? Yeah. And there's so much that goes into that. Um, and I think even last night, uh, in some of those after hours conversations on, on, on clubhouse, we were talking about cards, market setting cards, you know, a certain card that may go for a number that's going to affect other cards that relate to that card. And so if you, if, if you were, if you understand that as an investor, right. And you see a certain cards doing this, right. You know, right away how that's going to affect other things and you can capitalize on that. Right. And that's what, when these uh, pricing algorithm, algorithms get uh, more mature, they will be able to do that very, very quickly. But yeah. they need the data. They need the variables. Everything has to be kind of structured accordingly. We're not even, we're not even there yet. So, yeah. so there's opportunity is what I'm getting at. There's opportunity yeah. for people that want to do that work and, and you know. And we're seeing it. We're, we're seeing uh, people doing it. So good stuff. Okay. I want to just address a few comments here. Uh, Chris says, how often do you get invites? I think, I think once you use the ones you have, uh, you get more. So, you know, again, if, if anybody uh, wants one, uh, send me a message and um, I can, I can, I can uh, invite you as soon as I'm able to. Uh, okay. Great to hear Charles name invited you. Wonderful. Cardboard wants to see some cards. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Sanderson to orb signed up for clubhouse. Great to hear uh, card collector. I love the show. Can't wait to watch the show with Ken. Hey, thank you. Card collector 1982. Darren Halgum says the talk about Jordan was good. Great job as always, Jeremy. And you haven't even, and you even kept Ken on longer than his wife wanted. Yes, I did. Darcy says, what is the largest sale Ken has ever made? Is it the, is it the Mike Trout uh, from for 3.8 million last year? I think so. I think that would still hold the record, right? Because then the Giannis was 1.85 and then he had, he's had some stuff go, um, I guess for, I guess a broken, no, he's had stuff break too. He had the Kobe, the Kobe Tops Chrome Refractor did uh, 1.8 as well, or did it break? Yeah. So he's had a couple stuff around the $2 million range. I think he's had an RPA LeBron, right? All those stuff. And but I think the trout was. I think it's the trout. I think yeah. it's the trout. Yeah. Yeah. Toa Hangs says, biggest thing I took from Ken is that PSA, BGS, and SGC will be catering to high value cards. This is going to price out many people, but this is appetite that has to be met. Yeah, no doubt. Darren says, my critique of what Ken said about supplying to more places, keeping better tabs on quality product, overproduction, won't limit buying, more greed knowing they wouldn't be getting tons of nines and tens. I don't know that I follow that exactly, but sounds seems to make sense. Brian Shulman says, card market equals think big and long term. I, I agree with that. Sanderson Door Upper Deck has TV commercials now on the NHL network here in the States. Great to hear. <laughs> 
Deacon Burrell says, Jeremy, second to your wife and kids. I told, what was that in reference to? Did I say I love my cards? Probably. Yeah, definitely second to wife and kids. I appreciate that if uh, for, for keeping me uh, honest there, D. Uh, sports cards. Oh, the sports card community is great and a lot of fun for sure. Card porn says, Ken, come into the chat. I think he's sleeping by now, uh, card porn. Has Chase ever been to the expo? You ever been to the card, sports card expo in Toronto? I want to go. Um, I awesome, was told when I first got in the hobby that you see more Gretzky rookies there than you see Jordan Jordan rookies like uh, oh way more stuff and it just it just it's just full of all that. I I would love to just see the plethora of hockey cards and one of the great things about hockey cards that I've learned by just knowing having a relationship with Carvin and it's just the designs on hockey cards are freaking amazing. I They're mean, nice freaking amazing. Form. And if you love aesthetics, you know, even if you don't love the sport of hockey you got to appreciate these cards, man. I mean, they are phenomenally designed. I mean, some yeah. of the coolest stuff, especially like the UD Black stuff that he's been showing me, the patches, really cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Tower 72, uh, not sure if you discussed this before. Uh, curious on your thoughts on tops going public. I think that's a, uh, oh, I see, D, thank you. I said the people in this hobby are second to none. Fair, fair comment. I appreciate the clarification. Thoughts on tops going public. Um, I'm going to go first, Chase, and then I want to hear what you think. So I do have a few thoughts on this. Um, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be a great thing for for baseball collectors. I actually feel bad for baseball collectors because they are going to be more more profit oriented than ever before because that's what shareholders want and that's what they need to report on. So. I think, I mean, I don't, this is pure speculation. I have no idea other than what I know from what I do for a living is that I've wor I work in a company that we went public in 2018 and the pressure on a public company to report to the shareholders, to the public is immense. And the, the cost associated with being public is immense. It, it, it's, at least, I mean, it depends how big you are, but it's at least a million dollars a year just to run a just to run the public entity itself. Never mind, never mind your 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 occupancy costs, your labor costs, your GNA, your marketing. Take that all out of the equation. Even your regular professional fees to run a public company, at least a million bucks a year. That million dollars could be spent in other places if you're not public. So they're now going to be responsible to the shareholders they're going to they're going to be basically at the at the mercy of the shareholders who all the shareholders care about is profit and dividends and share price and share price is based on financial statements that are publicly reported um and and and, and scoured over by all the analysts and everyone who's making predictions about what revenues are going to look like and all these sorts of things so i mean Ken's a lot more bullish on it than I am. I think that uh, the, I, I just, I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the board of directors are going to really try to keep the product quality high because I'm skeptical. And I'm tell you what, I'm super, as a hockey guy, first and foremost, I'm glad Upper Deck is not a public company because I would, I would be, I just, oh, oh no, I'd be very fearful. So I feel bad for the baseball collectors, to be quite honest. Chase, you want to chime in? Sure. Um, so I think it could go bad, like you're saying, and I think it could go, it could go, there's some positives that could come out of it, but I agree with you. 
it tends to be a bad recipe when a company has the pressure to quarter over quarter, year over year, always be increasing revenues. It tends to lead to people pushing the envelope, doing things uh, at, the, at the sake of the long term for the benefit of the short term. I think we see that and I think we've all worked for publicly traded companies, at least I, I know you, are, you have and I have. And, and we understand that that's a dynamic that gets created there. And the problem with that is that the longevity of the hobby is what matters the most. Not like any, any that goes for any auction houses, quarterly earnings, any one auction house, you know, uh, one year earnings, the sustainability of the hobby is what matters uh, for the health of the auction house, for the health of the manufacturer, for the health of the collector, for the health of everybody. And as stakeholders in this hobby, we should all be cognizant of that. And so getting back to tops, you know, if they push too much product, um, if they push the envelope on, on, on print runs, if they push the envelope on, on things of that nature, then of course, like, you know, we could run into problems. On the other hand, I look at the tops acquisition and the amount of capital that they'll be able to raise. If the people that are in charge of that company make really good decisions with that capital um, and are able to make plays and that the purpose of going public is to do those types of things, then there could be, there could be benefits. But again, I think it goes back to who's in, you know, who's in charge. And when I look at um, what a play could be, and I'm, it's a it's a stretch. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm throwing it as a possibility, right? I mean, Tops could bid for the NBA license against Panini, right? If they're raising billions of dollars, who's to say that they can't throw their hat in the ring and say, hey, you know what? Panini's license is coming up soon. Why can't we have a shot at it? You know, we've we've represented the NBA in the past. Um, does it does it have to be? Does the NBA have to deal with one company? Could we open that conversation up again? That dialogue up? So that's like a year away, but that, those conversations could start in like six months. You know, uh, what would that mean for the hobby, right? Uh, if a Topps Chrome product comes back out in basketball, or we have now two companies or maybe three companies or four companies or ho however it would be, this is just a dreaming, right? But with every dream, there's a possibility, right, of a reality. And, um, you know, I know that if I was in charge of the company and I, was, and I raised that much money, I would make a shot at it. Another thing is marketing. We talked about marketing. I'm just going to tell you, you know, I'm in the marketing world. I come from the marketing world. You know, I, I, I worked at Google. I'm, I've worked for Fortune 100s and built companies and through, through you know, e-commerce companies myself to from nothing to 100 million in revenue and all through marketing. Right. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that these companies are bad at marketing. They're just not good at bringing attention to this hobby. OK, I'd say that Ken Golden is a much better marketer than anybody else, okay? Um, what he's done this last year, uh, the publicity that he's, that he's garnered for the hobby, um, you know, these companies have huge budgets, uh, tons of money at stake, and they're not doing it. Now people say, well, they're not doing it because they don't have to do it. I mean, the product sells itself, you know? I mean, not to make a bad, bad analogy, but it's almost like drugs. I mean, it seems like they can charge any price and there's like people that wanna buy it. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the first thing that happened when the pandemic hit is, is Walmart and Amazon cut marketing. That was the first thing they cut because they had so much demand, they couldn't even meet the, su the supply. So why are they going to spend money on marketing? But the thing is, is that we want to bring people into this hobby so we can grow it, right? But the right people, and it needs to be marketed the right way. Um, and that's not happening now. So that's another thing that Tops could do with that money in a positive way. 
But again, it goes back to the people. You know, who are the people that are going to be making those decisions? And is it the right team? Yeah. And well, you know, that's, yeah. With the go public at one point, was it 1.3, 1.5 billion dollars? Like, is that right? Is that I yep, think that's that, what that I was, heard. That was right. Yeah. And I think that that's where did like, you know, yeah. you know, companies I've seen go public, um, <clears throat> the money, the money that comes in is used to scale the business, right? That's usually what happens with the money. Of course, hopefully, the, the hopefully. Hopefully the founding, oftentimes the founders, the founders and the president's list and I get, you know, they pocket some money too. Oftentimes a lot of the, a lot of those shares are sold right away. Well, after the holding period, they're sold, they're sold onto the, onto the, onto the market. And they, they, it's a liquidation event for them. It's a liquidity event for them in a lot, in a lot of cases. So if, uh, if, if all this money is going to come in and they're going to use it to scale, they're going to use it to market, hopefully, but the thing that that I, it, it, it excites me and it scares me is what you mentioned. Are they going to use that money to challenge Panini for basketball and football license, to challenge Upper Deck for the hockey license? Which, you know, I would just hope at that point that the the end that the PAs and the leagues would actually be open to more than than a single license uh, environment that we've been in for so long now. Because as everybody thinks competition breeds innovation and hopefully competition breeds a more a higher quality product you know we i've heard carvin say it so many times be careful what you wish for he doesn't necessarily think that uh, that leaving or moving away from the single license uh, environment we're in now would be good for all of us we all you know we all want to see it i think we want more options and we want the competition yeah. but we don't know what it's really going to look like once it happens. So, yeah. But if they do not, Chase, if they do not get other uh, licenses from major sports leagues and they, they stick, let's just pretend they stick with baseball and they try and scale baseball, that's where I say I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm, that's where I'm fearful because, again, it's all like you said, it's all about financial results. It's not about, are cards coming out of packs damaged? Are they un, are they off centered? Are there rounded corners? Shareholders don't care about that. All they care about are what those financial statements look like and what their share price is worth, which is based on what the financial statements look like. That's how the market responds. So it's uh it's one of these things where we won't know for several years. Well, let's say three years, we might have an idea, but you'll know as soon. Like people have been saying in the comments. You know, right here, Darren says maybe top sprints like eight thousand, eight million one one oh ones. Like, you know, it's we gotta be we 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 just we don't know what it's gonna look like for sure, but don't think for sure that it's gonna be a great thing for baseball collectors. And if they do move into other leagues, doesn't mean it's gonna be a great thing, even if the incumbent retains a license as well. We just don't know. Yeah, I mean, and just to jump and piggyback on what you were saying about multiple licenses for one sport i mean yes it breeds competition breeds innovation i think i'm i'm a big believer that the hobby the hobby is in need of innovation and with the products um but there but to carbon's point and a lot of these guys that have worked on the other side of things there is a ton of bureaucracy in the production of sports cards i mean the, even just the, getting the licensing to use the photos uh, there's an entire process between the players union and and, and getting approval from the nba 
uh, you know, which images that you can use. There's there's individual um, contracts that have to sign with players in regards to autographing. I mean, there's tons and tons of nuances within this hobby for producing the product. And I get that. But we're talking about astronomical amounts of money that we're charging for, you know, these cards, these boxes. Right. Like, I mean, and so what I look at it is like, yes, there's there's barriers that make it difficult. Okay. But when you're talking about a market of this size now, right. And the, and the, and the market potential, we have to realize that yes, there's barriers, but you know what, we're going to figure those barriers out and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do it because it's best for this, this hobby long-term. And it's very important, you know, um, just think about, you know, if, if something as big as the, I'm not comparing cards to the art market by any means. I know the art market's in, in another league and it's another thing. But just imagine something like the art market depended, uh, an entire sector of it depended on a league's decision about what artists were allowed to make things. And think about what that would, no, I'm serious. Think about what that yeah, would no, do. That's, to the, that's to the market, it, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah, but, but I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but, that, but, 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 but this is a space. And that's, this space is limited to the powers that be in these leagues and who they choose to allow to create. That's what I'm getting at. And I think that, you know, yes, there's barriers to it. I, I totally get that. This is not an easy thing. And, and plus, these leagues want to deal with one person. I mean, we yeah, know what it's like to run a company. We know that the NBA is used to licensing. We, you know, we, we choose Dodge, and they're the official truck of the NBA. We deal with Dodge, and that's who we deal with. And that's who gets our stamp. That's who gets our, our and, and, and that's going to be our truck. That's the mindset. They, they have a lot of things that they're doing and they're, a, you know, they're a limited business with limited resources and they don't want to necessarily create departments to manage this entire vertical. Right. Yeah. However, and that is, that is a big reason. That's, that's the reason why, why we're in a single licensee uh, environment right now. And I'll just, I'll just uh, keep your thought there, but I'll emphasize what you just said. I work in a very unique uh, industry right now, the cannabis industry. That's what I do in my day job. And um, in in Canada, we have stores across the country. In every province, except for Saskatchewan, which is like which is you know north of North Dakota, I think. Um, in every for our cannabis inventory purchases, they all come from one vendor, and that's the government distributor, the government-run distributor. It makes our job very easy. To, sure. to, per, to, to run our buying department, it's, right. except in Saskatchewan, where we buy from the producers directly. And we it takes a lot more of our human resources to run that. And it's it's a more of a pain in the butt, just like why they don't want to do it. So I understand, I understand the approach that the leagues have taken. Mm -hmm. It's it's only out of convenience. And I've wondered out loud before on the show, considering how big the market is gone what we've seen in the last year is it not the perfect time for the leagues to, to wake up and say hey maybe we should hire someone else for 100 150 grand a year to whatever it costs run this go to a multi-license situation and bring in more revenue especially with what's going on recently i mean it, that makes sense to me but maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe it doesn't make sense to them well, with the with the size of the market and where it's headed and the growth of it and the potential size of it um, and the, you know, I think that alone is enough to keep to, to, at least for the NBA to or other sports leagues to open up the conversation to at least open it up to a possibility. Um, because, you know, if they care about their fans and they care about people that love the sport, that's a lot of these people that, that are collecting these cards, right? It's it really our love for these sports and, and how we choose to show that love right or a lot of us choose to connect to these athletes 
And we, I think we deserve to have the best product. And, you know, this is not, I believe that, that cards are not a commodity. They are, a, a, they are creative works of intellectual property. And to, to limit that, like I said, using that art market analogy, to limit that to just one group um, and give that, that whole control of that entire industry to them, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's, not, it's not in their consumer's interest, uh, which is the NBA fan, which is me, which is collectors, which, you know, um, you know we, I think, would want the best product possible. And I'm not sure that that's what we're getting right now. And I would just challenge the NBA to think about their consumer, right? And I'm the, I'm a, I'm the NBA's consumer, right? Uh, you know, and, and I think that uh, that's your customer should always be, you know, um, that's who you should be. You should always be customer obsessed. And, and at the end of the day, it'll, it'll, it'll work out in the long run for you, in my opinion. And that's how I think about it. But it is, it, I get the bureaucracy of it. I get the challenges of it. It's by no means an easy task, but we're not talking about a, a small upside here. We're talking about a major market um, potential um, for modern, um, in the case of basketball, for modern basketball, but other sports too. Um, and I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jason Ersener, nothing against Saskatchewan, not for me anyway. We, we, we make our highest margins in Saskatchewan because there's no government uh, sticking themselves in between us and our, and our ultimate uh, vendor. So uh, yeah, go Saskatchewan as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay, man. Well, listen, uh, we, we've, we've, we debriefed uh, the Ken Golden episode from earlier. And Ken, if you're still watching, you might you can see what we said earlier on. I don't know when you got back, but that was at the beginning of this episode. Uh, we've talked about tops going public and a bunch of things, uh, you know, spawned from there. I thought that was great. Let's uh, let's let's learn a little bit about uh, about Chase, really. I mean, what's it? Tell me. Tell us. Tell me. Tell us. You know, what's your hobby origin story? I don't know you that well. I know I know the type of cards that you that you purchase, that you collect and invest in. And we're talking, oh, Terry tells me that the Flames won five nothing. That's a good win. That's my team, Chase. Um, what uh, let's hear a bit about your origin story and a little bit about your approach to the hobby personally. Yeah, sure. Um, so my origin was like, like most collectors, I, I started collecting as a kid, you know, young kid, probably six, seven years old, maybe um, when I come in the hobby of uh, A's were hot, the Oakland A's were the team. And so, you know, I started off collecting, you know, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, um, Dennis Eckersley, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, that was kind of the, 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 the rage at the time, right? So kind of got into there. And then um, I found my way kind of out of uh, baseball and into basketball. Uh, I think I started in the 80s, mainly most collectors were baseball collectors. And then with the rise of Michael Jordan uh, and the popularity of him, he really fueled the card market and brought so many people um, into, into cards. And I became kind of fascinated with uh, some of the early 90s stuff and to the point where, you know, I was doing it all the time and, and, and my parents, and I had a lot of energy. So my parents kind of suggested that I, I go try to the local card shop and just go apply for a job and, and, and maybe work there like part time or something and help out for. And I, and I did. I, I went and I applied and uh, a bunch of times and I got hired and and I worked for trade because I think I was too young to even legally be paid. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a guy that managed the sports card department, uh, kind of a, a curmudgeon type guy, but he uh, didn't get along with the owner of the store, but he was kind of the manager. And you know, he kind of would quiz me about how to, at that time, we didn't have graded cards. Everything was, you know, you had to, you had to grade cards based on eye appeal and Beck Beckett would issue uh, these guidelines for grading, you know, mint, gem mint and, and all the different factors. And 
So I'd already read all that stuff. And I think when they hired me, they gave me a test and they said, you know, tell us which one of these cards is, is mint and which is not mint and how much you would pay for each one and et cetera. And I, and I did that and I did it well. And so they, you know, they decided to make me kind of a assistant in this, to the sports card shop. And I started to do all help with the buying and the, and the customers. And then eventually that guy that was running the department got in an argument with the owner and they, he like, let him go. And then they're like, Hey, let, this kid's doing a really good job. Let, let him run the department. So here it was this kid in high school. And now I'm the one basically in charge of like ordering the product, uh, negotiating the, you know, the deals when customers come in with their collections, uh, breaking boxes and putting stuff in the case raw, you know? And so it gave me this huge opportunity as a, as a young person to understand, first of all, like breaking product, like how easy was it really to pull a Kobe refractor from a box of tops chrome? Well, I can tell you, I opened a lot of that product. So, so like, I understand how difficult it is to pull that product and to get centered copies and to find it and whatnot. And, and so I had a familiarity, a, a, a connection to it um, on that level. And I saw people, how they responded to product too, because they were coming in all the time. And, and, and I, and I remember which cards people wanted and what, and how they responded to it, but it happened to be in this era where it was like every single product that was coming out was just better than the next. And it was like, other than the last, I should say. And it was just this amazing time in sports card history or whatever. And so I did that for years and I built up a pretty large collection since, you know, I had been working for trade by the time I was done with high school, but you know, life takes its course and you go on to college and your career and, you know, I ended up, you know, um, kind of getting away from the hobby, but I, and, and even selling a lot of stuff, um, and kind of going about my life. And I went into to marketing and e-commerce and, uh, and I built a good career for myself. Um, but a few years ago, um, out of nostalgia, out of curiosity, out of wanting to own some of the stuff I never got to own as a kid, um, I started to get back into the market and I noticed some inefficiencies in the market. I, I thought were inefficiencies. And I also noticed, um, you know, an opportunities uh, to, for on the investment side, as well as just kind of collecting the stuff that I liked. And so I started to kind of act on that. And, and you know, what I discovered, though, along the process was that this hobby is way is mu about much more than just these cards, right? Like the cards were amazing. And I love the cards. I love the cards. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I can spend hours. Just, I mean, when Ken lists a new auction, just going through everything. That's fun to me, checking eBay on a daily basis, you know, going to shows, looking at my own stuff, talking, you know, but the community, the card community and how amazing that was, was a, was a shock to me and how addicting the entire process is for finding cards, uh, researching cards, uh, selling cards, the, the whole thing is really engaging and exciting. It's actually, it's, it's, but it's about more than again, than just the cards. So that was shocking to me. And I think it, it, I got hooked. Quick, quick interjection, you know, because when, when you're saying all this, I'm, I agree, like the hobby is exciting. There's so many different things we can do in the hobby, so many different places we can go uh, on the internet to, to, to hobby physically. And we said earlier that, you know, the hobby needs some simplicity. I wonder if we get what, if we get what we want, will we be disappointed that it might get more boring less you know yeah. what are we we're gonna have all this time freed up what are we gonna do with it all of a sudden yeah. spend it with our families like what are we gonna do exercise go to work more exactly yeah i mean we talked about an idea of a frictionless card market 
And that, to me, I know intrinsically is not really necessarily a good thing because the friction in the card market is what makes it challenging. It's what makes it fun. It's what makes it, uh, I mean, we don't play games. We don't play basketball games, right? Against people we know we can beat, right? We want to play against people that, oh, you know what? This is tough, right? Yeah. We're all competitors, I think. A lot of us like are sports guys, people that are around the sports hobby. And the idea of like a frictionless market where it's it's just easy, you're just pushing buttons, like, like a stock, right? There's no barriers to finding the car. There's no barriers to getting the car and negotiating, trying to get someone to sell it to you, um, you know? all the, the, the landmines that you have to get through, right? In terms of understanding what you're buying, um, you know, preventing anything going wrong, such as like, you know, that can happen with the transaction or buying a card that's not the card you're, that's, that's being showed or, or whatever the, the landmines are, that's all part of the fun of the sports card game. And that's what it really it is, right? If it was just like selling a stock where you just, you know, buy Microsoft, sell Microsoft, that's, where's the fun in that? Right. No fun. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, be careful what you wish for. I mean, there's definitely some truth that but I think we all fell in love with that game. I was going to say there's no fun buying and selling stocks unless you're buying the stock for a dollar, selling it for two or more and then taking those profits and buying sports cards. Then stocks are fun. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure I mean, some people have been doing which. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not I'm not advocating like, you know, that that the sports card market doesn't have its, uh, you know, difficulties or whatever. But I think overall, the whole game um, and the challenge is kind of what makes it addicting, you know, uh, or one of the elements of it. Yeah. And, you know, even when it comes to the complexity of the sets that are out right now with all the parallels and inserts, mm -hmm. part of the fun of the hobby is researching and studying and learning that and, and maybe finding an edge for yourself, you know, uh, on certain inserts looking at pack odds if, if we still even see them so it, it again it comes down back to be careful what you wish for but when it comes to new entrants that's where simplicity would be helpful because i think some people come in and they are overwhelmed and then they just turn around and perhaps go the other way so i see i see an argument for both sides of that um okay a couple of comments and i want to hear and then we're going to hear about what you what you're collecting now in your current approach of the hobby uh, i'm going to go back here uh uh, this is either Jacelyn or Jacqueline Montague. I uh, appreciate that. Yes, flick the flick the corner of your of your penny sleeve so that you don't catch a corner when you insert them. I showed that a few times. Yes, I'm glad that that's working for you, uh, Jacelyn. Uh, Chris Dwornick, yeah, a guy from Manitoba. You aren't supposed to like Saskatchewan. I mean, you know, Saskatchewan is actually not that bad to drive through on the Trans Canada Highway, but I will say I do like their government's approach to distribution. They are ahead of the rest of the country when it comes to that, as far as the industry I'm in goes, at least. Sports card seller, very cool story, Chase. Thanks for sharing how you started in cards. Yes, I agree. Thank you for that. Ben Warwick says, here in Australia, in the early 90s, we had 20 kids to every adult in card shops. Now it's 20 adults to every kid. Has the hobby forgotten the kids? We talked about that with Ken Golden earlier tonight, and um, I don't think the hobby's for. I know for a fact the hobby has not forgotten the kids. The kids, I think, are interested in other things right now, and it's kind of the hobby's challenge to compete with those other interests the kids have and try and get them back in. And it also, I believe, we we are the hobby. Ben, you're the hobby. Chase is the hobby. I'm the hobby. Ken Golden is the hobby. Everybody watching right now, we are the hobby, and I think it's somewhat on us 
to involve kids. I have one tip I'm going to give everybody. And you have a lot of time to prepare for this. You've got till October the 31st, Halloween. Take base cards. Even go buy some at the, at the hobby shop. Get base cards. Put 10 in a team bag and give them away on Halloween. But you also have to give away the candy. Give away candy. Give away little team bags of base cards or jersey cards, whatever you can afford, whatever you want to do. Give them away on Halloween. I've been doing it for 15 years. And I can tell you, the kids love it. The boys and the girls, they love it. That's my tip. I've said it a hundred times, but that's for everybody who's new tonight. Do that on Halloween. That's what we as the hobby can do to help make sure that we that the hobby doesn't forget the kids. And that's our way of, of showing them. We're not forgetting. We're remembering. We're giving cards to kids when we can. Chase, I challenge you to do the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge to everybody listening. Give cards away on Halloween. All right. Ben says, we can't have a card boom in 20 years without kids being involved today. Agree. Agree. We need to We need to keep, although 20-year-olds today, and there's a lot of 20-year-olds in the hobby, will be 40, and they'll have more money then than they do now. So I'm not concerned 20 years from now. I'm concerned more like 40, 50 years from now. And I'm not even that concerned because I know the cards are awesome and people will gravitate towards them. But, you know, I think uh, we, we should still cultivate those youngsters so that they don't have to worry about it. Today's 20-year-olds don't have to worry about it 20 years from now. Eric says, just like women, the chase is the fun. There you go, Eric. There you go. Mr. LAGN says, only six likes. Come on, guys. You know what? It's funny. I like when you all hit the thumbs up button. It makes me feel good. But I know we have over 100 people watching tonight. That makes me feel better. I'm glad to have all of you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I know Chase is a great attraction. He's got a great following on Clubhouse. He's one of the great moderators on Clubhouse. So thank you, Chase, for bringing people to the show tonight as well. Sebastian says the chase is the juice and 100% community is one of the best aspects of the hobby. No doubt about it. And Colin Murray says kids can't afford our cards now. Well, I mean, I think it depends on what cards they can afford. Yeah, they can't afford Prism. That's for sure. But they, in hockey, I know they can afford Opeachy and MVP and all those, all those packs, but that's why we can give them away for free. And um, at the end of the day, Kids will grow up and have more money, and uh, hopefully they'll be able to in, be in the hobby. Time will tell. I, I think there are ways. I think there are cards out there that are affordable to kids. I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't buy this comment one hundred percent because there are. They might not be this year's products, but you can still find some cards, even if it's just singles and loose cards. Take your kids. Take the kids to the card show. Encourage kids in your neighborhood to go to the go to a card show. I, I guarantee you. I've been doing it for years. It comes by. I've got 10, 10 jersey cards that are that aren't worth too much. You give a kid a jersey card, their eyes pop. So, if cards are not affordable at retail or even at hobby shops, let's take the responsibility. Let's stop complaining about it. Let's take the responsibility upon ourselves as represent as representatives of the hobby, as the hobby, and let's let's be generous. Be generous. We've all done very well this year in cards. Let's be generous and let's share some cards with kids. Chase, how are you approaching the hobby over the last couple of years since you've been back in it? Well, originally, um, you know, I looked at it like um, very globally. You know, I don't, I didn't approach it. When I got in the hobby, I noticed that collectors had a narrative. People that had been in the hobby for a long time. There were certain things that were considered assumptions that um, such as, you know, what cards were important. And I look at sports cards in a much broader way and i think ken alluded tonight too that there's a lot of guys out there that want to buy cards 
and maybe only have four or five big cards, but just to be part of the game because they appreciate cards, they appreciate what they are, and they want to have some cards that represent their favorite players, right? And, you know, I look at that like there's a lot of people that are that necessarily may not want to go full force and become a complete card nerd and like want to own like the, the, and understand every intricacy of our hobby, right? There's still a lot of people that may just want to own some of the most um, well-recognized and, um, you know, uh, uh, well-recognized issues of some of the most iconic guys. And that was my approach when I first came in. I wanted to build kind of fundamental pieces, right? If you think about a basketball collection, and I thought about this a lot when I first got in the hobby, you know, you have to have fundamental pieces and you build out from there. But what are those fundamental pieces? What would they be if you're a new collector kind of coming in? And for me, like I think about it like, well, what's my fundamental piece? Well, if I had to boil down, I can only own one card, I would start there, right? If it's for me personally, right? Well, what would that card be? It would have to have certain elements to me. First, it would have to be nostalgic, right? It have to be maybe something that I that I always wanted, right? Something that I knew throughout history was important. Something that, you know, was maybe an iconic thing that uh, was something that, uh, you know, invoked a lot of emotion when you looked at it because of how many times we've seen it, because over the years we know it, it's a, it's a picture in our head, right? That those initially, I thought like I need, I need, I need at least those core pieces if I'm gonna build a collection out, right? Um, and I chose basketball because to me, that's the sport that I love the most. And it's also something I felt like um, from an investment standpoint, since I was planning on spending a lot of money, you know, it has a global appeal. Uh, and I also kind of felt like the last 30 years since the evolution of Nike, um, these athletes have become superheroes. They're not really just athletes anymore. And there's sure. billions of Yep, they're, they're cultural icons, is mm -hmm. what they're. They, they, a lot yep. of them transcend the sport. A lot yep. of them, not a lot. Absolutely. Some of I them mean, do, right? Yeah, they're literally superheroes. I mean, LeBron James and Michael Jordan are literally like Space Jam, like action heroes, right? Like, I mean, yeah. that's literally what they are. And um, you know, Nike. If you ever go visit Nike's campus, which I've been there, I mean, you go to these buildings, and there's buildings dedicated buildings with with hundreds of people that are working on the Mamba brand or the LeBron brand or the Jordan brand, and these are these are really these are the, some of the best of the best in the entire world, right? Handpicked to make sure that these people, these brands live on forever, hopefully, yeah. because Nike's billions of dollars invested. Now, you know, what does that mean? Well, you know, I love Lou Alcindor. I got the Lou Alcindor shirt on here, you know, and he's, and he, you know, um, you know, but he doesn't have a building at Nike, you know, with somebody saying, well, I want to make sure he lives on. Now, of course, he's going to live on. Of course, he's a legend. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that Kobe and LeBron and Jordan, to me, you know, I feel like, you know, it is something that is, you know, another level. And so that's where I, I felt like, you know, I want to have these core pieces like in my collection. And uh, and so I started with with those kind of core iconic cards in the highest possible grade. And, you know, I kind of branched out from there. Um, but that's where I kind of I kind of started. So I bought like the PSA 10 Jordans, you know, uh, a couple years ago. I bought the Kobe Refractor a couple years ago. Bought the LeBron James Topps Chrome Refractor. I bought some of his, uh, some other LeBron James rookie stuff. Um, and then I started to kind of um, veer and learn more about the hobby, uh, like a lot of people do. And I learned about, um, you know, patch autos and serial numbered cards. And I think those cards are great. 
Um, and I wanted to own some of those too, because I, I think having a Jersey and having an auto is connects you on a personal level with the player. The, 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 the rookie cards to me are critical because throughout the card history of 120 years of collecting or whatever it is now, the very first issue or the, the recognized first issue, uh, accepted first issue of any player in its most iconic form, right, is the one that over time is considered to be the most important, right? Because it's the first time that we get to see them. And it's like us basically getting an IPO in a sense of yeah. the player, really. It's our version of it. And I believe in history repeating itself, right? So I don't think that rookie cards are, are never gonna not be popular. And the other thing about rookie cards is everybody knows what a rookie card is. So if I go to like anybody in the world and I tap them on the shoulder, I say, hey, do you know what a rookie card is? They're gonna say yes. But if I ask them, hey, do you know what um, this really rare Ruby's insert is? They're probably gonna say no, right? Yeah. They don't understand the importance of that. So that it doesn't have broad appeal like the rookie card. However, if you're a, if you're a kind of a collector or, an, or, or, a, or a, a real true hobbyist and you're really into this hobby, of course we appreciate those cards, but they don't necessarily have the marketing, the broad marketing appeal of, some, of a key rookie card because a rookie card is a rookie card. I mean, we know Hank Aaron has one. We know uh, Joe DiMaggio has one. We know, you know, uh, uh, Onus Wagner has one, right? I mean, throughout time, Everybody gets their first issue and everybody has their most iconic first issue and that's what they have. And so that to me was kind of uh, important, but as you get more mature in the hobby, you do learn that, you know, there's this plethora of other cards available, which I already knew, but I wanted to start with that foundational core because I think at the core of the hobby and the history of the hobby, the rookie card is critical um, to, to both uh, having a high floor in terms of the value um, it being considered to be um, its prestige and pedigree is pretty safe. You know, when, it, when you get past the rookie year, you get into the nuance of a preference. You know, uh, you can't argue with a rookie card. You can't, you know, you just can't argue with that. So that was kind of where I started. And then I built out from there. And then I got into kind of really rare patch autos. But I prefer, again, going back to that rookie card analogy, the original patch autos. So everybody else was going towards exquisite, which exquisite is by far the Bentley set. There's no denying that it is the, in basketball. It's the, it is the Bentley set. Um, but I went more towards the early upper deck autos because I feel like I look at innovation in cards as being very important. So what a card does to creating a franchise within the card hobby and the original people that came up with the first idea that let's take a patch and let's put it on a card and sign it. Think about how, how forward thinking and out of the box that must have been. I mean, they have to make a thicker card. You have to do a deal with Jordan. You got to get a jersey. You got to put it on there. You have to figure all the logistics out. You got to get it in the product. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Then there was a serial number, right, that went on them. And that was the first time that they did this stuff. And so I really think that that's like me paying homage to those people that created that 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 created a trend that now dominates the hobby forever. Just like Topps Chrome created a trend for Chromium cards that's dominated the hobby forever. So when you think about a rookie card, a rookie card is the first of something, but that's also the first of something. And to me, that has value. I gotta, I gotta jump in, man, because yeah. I mean, we think a lot along the same lines. I've always been a fan of the first of something and you're, you're articulating it better than I would. But I completely agree. You know, the first the first issue being the rookie card or 
or even if it's and even if their first issue comes out later, like subsequent to their first season of, of professional sports, that's fine. First issue, very important, but I love it. The first I collect the first jersey cards that from Upper Deck Hockey, the 96 jerseys to me, you know, all the jerseys that came thereafter, except for the second year, nobody really cares. And some, you know, I shouldn't say nobody cares. Nobody's just going out and really picking collecting those sets anymore that I that I know of. Player collectors want those cards, sure. And the odd person collects them if they're doing a master set sort of thing. But for the most part, those early ones, to me, as you said, they set the stage for what's to come. They're innovative at the time. And they are always going to be the first, which to me is very important uh, when it comes to collecting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that 100%. The rookie card itself, you know... Um, so important, I agree. I consider it to be, I consider most rookie cards because most of them outside of the more modern auto patches out of 99 or 249 or you know the real limited ones, I consider them to be commodity cards, highly liquid, easy to get into and easy to get out of. Three days later, you can get out of it. You can sell them on Instagram very easily. But like you said, subsequent to the rookie card, it comes down to choice, preference, aesthetics, what speaks to you. And I found that there's this there's this slice of time in the second half of the '90s where the insert the, the 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 creative inserts that came out, most of them from Arena Design, I believe, mm-hmm. are so important now too. So very much so, very much so, very much mature. So. Yeah, like I don't I don't want to say sophisticated collectors because it's not sophisticated. It's more like mature a mature collector, just like yourself. You're maturing through the stages of rookie card first then the first jersey auto then maybe you're going to get into some rare insert rare inserts and oh, to yeah, me I've done that yeah I, I, yeah. I, that and, was, yeah yeah and, and and that's where you get into i think where rarity and aesthetics mm-hmm. become as important overall as the first of Very whichever so. whatever so yeah. um I I want you to carry on, but I do want to address some comments that have been coming in. So I'll leave it to you. Do you want to continue or should we do some comments? Whatever you prefer. I mean, I just will say one thing about the inserts. They definitely transition into this area of art, you know, where it becomes, you know, you know, the base rookie cards to me are photography. And I think some of the the most iconic cards in our in our in our hobby have some of the most amazing. The mantle to me is the greatest one of my greatest, greatest images, period, of all time, in my opinion, I, I love the mantle rookie image i love the jordan image i mean i don't know how they were able to capture such a an amazing picture uh of him flying through the air everybody else is on the ground the tongue out i mean it's just like it's too good to be true you know the, the same way i feel about the mantle uh the, you know the image of him i mean the mick in the big city it, it's, it's like a piece of art that photo when you yeah. get into the inserts it's much more on the creative level what they're doing with the design to your point right of the card that it's it's another element of the hobby that's 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 amazing but it's different and that's great they're both awesome they're not in competition with each other they're both no. amazing and they're both amazing yeah. but it might it might take the newer the new the newer hobbyist a little bit longer well it will to 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 graduate to the insert you know you got to we we are conditioned to start with the rookie card cuz like you said you can talk to anyone on the street and say, do you know what a rookie card is? Uh-huh. Pretty much everyone's going to say yes, unless you're maybe, you know, a recent immigrant from another country that doesn't have sports cards. But otherwise, you're probably gonna, they're probably going to know what, what a rookie card is. I agree with that. Okay. A right. couple of comments here I want to address. 
Uh, Sebastian says, cards are competing in a very competitive entertainment landscape. A lot of things vying for their attention and money. And I agree with that comment. A lot of things vying for that. But the one thing sports, I think, has the – where I think sports has the advantage because sports are ingrained – everywhere sports are a part of culture so i not that not that hollywood isn't not that music isn't not that video games aren't they all are but sports are so pervasive and we there's i think i think there's even a bit more of an emotional connection we have with sports especially if you're a sports fan and if you're a sports fan to me it's only natural to become a card collector i think i think that we will i think and i hope i hope i'll just say i hope that we get to a time when if you're a sports fan, you're also a card collector. They should go hand in hand to me. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Jump in. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, like, you know, uh, it's sports cards are a way for people to kind of connect with athletes. You know, we don't get to own teams. You know, we don't, most of us won't ever get to own a sports team. So it's kind of our way to be GM, right? And pick yes. our all, all, our all time. Great. Curate. Yeah. Curate the lineup. And, and the thing is, we can curate our lineup from every athlete that's ever had a card. So pretty cool that way. Yeah. Um, okay. I wanted to, Colin Murray says that uh, no shows have hurt the hobby. People are selling out like crazy. That can't be good. So I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to put the positive spin on this. And I'm going to say, if there are people selling out, that means there are people buying what's being sold. So as long as you have sellers, you have buyers. Commerce, transactional volume is important in our hobby. If we have people selling out, that means we have people buying in. So to me, it's a it's a zero-sum game right there. I don't see that as a bad thing. I What I see it as, weeding out the people who don't believe in it anymore and bringing in the people who do. To me, that's a that's actually a net positive for the hobby. So I think it is I think it is good, Colin. That's my take on that one. Do you want any comment on that from you, Chase? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that when people look at the amount of product that's been put on the market, I think it's an amazing testament to how strong the sports card market is. When you, you know, when Ken can say, I've sold 18 Jordans privately, I'll, I'll, I've seen, we've seen 30 or so go publicly, whatever it is. I mean, that's a massive amount. Of, and, and they've all in the four or $500,000 range. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, because what you're saying is there's so many people that believe long term in that, that that's a that's a great investment and there's so much capital being being put into these cards at, at, a, at a volume that would never have, have before been thought possible and and I think we have to put that in perspective you know and when you look at the amount of inventory like you said that's in the market also look at the amount of, of demand that's there to support the price levels um, that we're at and we're doing most people are doing it with the notion that it's a great investment at those prices even so, yeah. right? Um, so think about that. I mean, most people that invest in, in, in alternative assets expect to make a good uh, profit and they do over time. I mean, if you look at the data, they, they historically you know, really do. Yeah, and Ken put it really well. He said, we need churn, we need churn. And that's what I mean when I talk about transactional value. You need people churning these cards in and out Absolutely. in order for the, for the market to move and either, and not only move up, but to move down and to have those normal fluctuations. It's not gonna go like this all the time. We know that. If you've been right. watching the, if you've been watching for even the last two months, you know, it doesn't go like this all the time. You want it to do this. You well, need we saw, it. To do this. We saw corrections. I mean, in the market, if you look at when the Jordan, uh, when the documentary came out, it went to 100 and then went back to 60. The LeBron tops Chrome Refractor during last year's playoffs got all the way up to 80. It was one of the hottest cards in the market, then dropped down to 55 and then sprung up into the hundreds, right? And then all the way up to 265. Of course, it's corrected, but 
These are the, you know, if you had said then that the card was, oh man, it's 55, I'll dump it, you know, well, then you'd be missing out on a big six figure card right now. And if you had yeah. dumped the Jordan at a hundred grand, you know, because you thought that's the all time high, you know, listen, I'm going to be honest. These cards are market index cards. I mean, they're, if you don't believe in them, they're really, what you're doing is you're saying, I don't believe in the market. And I think I'm, I think we all agree the sports card market has a really bright future. When you look at where it's at right now. At, at the point it's at with the infrastructure it has, we look at where it's at compared to other collectible markets. And that's really what you need to pay attention to. Don't right. think about the card market in relation to where the card market was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Also look at the card market in relation to other collectible markets and ask yourself, does the card market have a good value proposition in relation to these other collectible markets where people can choose to, 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 to um, send money, right? So, to store value. Yeah. And I think well, the you, market has an excellent value proposition. Uh, you, said, I, I you said, yes. you did say, I think we can all agree, but I'm, I'm just going to let you know that, no, we don't all agree. I, I agree. I believe in, I believe in the sports cards as a collectible and as an, as an alternative asset, but I guarantee you, uh, we don't all agree with that. And that's no, why, that's people, that's that's why some people, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who don't think that the market is going to continue to trend upwards over time. Mm -hmm. And, but that's fine. You know, we, as Chris, as Chris McGill says a lot, we need people who are verbally, um, verbally expressing their, the opposite sides of the, of, of, of the, of the opinion, either. Yes, we're in a bull market. It's going to continue to, 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 to trajectory upwards, or it's going to go downwards. It, either, you know, people are saying 20 years from now, we're not going to have a hobby because there's no kids in it. I don't believe that to be true. I, I also don't think that, that, that the main target needs to be kids under 10 years old. I think that kid that it's, it's maybe, I mean, I'm not against them being in the hobby, of course, but I don't think that we need to rely on that for the future because, you know, there's a lot, all sorts of 25 year olds getting into the hobby. Now there's all sorts of, I've, I've been doing shows for a long time and I can tell you, it's not like it was in the nineties. For sure. It's not probably not like it was in the 80s either, but there are still kids that are interested in it. It's not it's not a um, it's oh, not no, a low absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and just just also commenting on the collectibles market, I, I do think that, yeah, there's people that disagree whether sports car values will continue to climb. But I think that when you look at sports cards or collectible markets, think about the demographic of people with expendable income. OK. And that demographic, what are the profiles of those people? Forget about what markets you think are the best or whatever, but what are the profiles? And ask yourself, do you think that the profile of buyer pools with the most expendable income, you know, 35 to 45 year olds, whatever you want to call it, 35 to 55, do you think that in the future, right, this demographic will care about stamps, uh, coins, currency? Um, do you think that they're going to be super into art, you know? What do you think they'll care about? Well, my determination two and a half years ago when I got into this and started kind of buying heavily was that we were, we were born, we were raised in a sports kind of obsessed culture. I mean, we were at the dawn of SportsCenter. SportsCenter launched when we were kids, okay? A 24-hour news coverage for sports. Nike launched the icon athlete in our generation. You know, Kobe, LeBron, MJ, of course, right? They were all launched um, in our era, you know, and that they be, this is all part of our upbringing and part of what we, um, have grown to love and care about. We don't just like sports in America. We love sports. Okay. In America and, and, the, and around the world. Uh, and you know, so when I look at 
a collectible market, you have to ask yourself what pe people collect, what they love. Okay. And I ask myself, do they love stamps? Do they love coins? Do they love some of these other collectible markets that are traditionally have a lot of capital parked in them? Or do they love sports cards, sports memorabilia, things of that nature? And if I have to make my bet, I'm going to place my bet with, with what makes sense with the demographic. And I think that we can all understand that there's certain demographic trends from this era that are in line with this vertical. So yeah. that's where I kind yeah. of get 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 to when I talk about what collectible markets will be successful or not. I'm just making that point. I think it's a good point. And I, you know, as long as there are sports, there will be cards. And as long as there are people, there will be collectors. And uh, we collect what we love and we love sports. We, 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 are, we, are, we are connected to them through our geographical um, proximity to the, to the teams and through our love for, for athletes or our admiration of athletes uh, as, as, a, as a society. So, okay, let's, uh, let's run through a few more comments here, Chase. Mm -hmm. Amara says, and I think Amara, I've seen Amara on Clubhouse, I believe, says, you know what kids have that we did in 25 years ago? eBay, Comp C, Stars, Talk, et cetera. They can buy the players they want instead of opening hundreds of packs full of commons like me in the 80s. Very, very good point. I think that, 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 and and just so you know, Chase, we are like 20 minutes behind on comments. So I'm happy. I mean, we can talk about all the and analyze sure, yeah, each one. I mean, if I just yeah. say one thing about that comment, one of the things too is that you know we didn't have eBay when we were collecting as kids, right? No. We didn't know what stuff was worth. We had to rely on Beckett, but we didn't have a global uh, auction marketplace like uh, like uh, Golden or or Heritage or, or or eBay or any of these things where we could see sold listings where we knew, hey, you know. So we had all kinds of confusions. We thought something was worth a lot more necessarily than it was because it wasn't readily available because we didn't have the internet. So, you know, that was a, a thing too. Yeah, yeah, for sure, hundred percent. I mean, and then that's what that's what really vaulted the hobby. You know, that's what allowed the hobby to recover from the early from the early '90s era, the junk wax era, right? So. Okay, let's keep running through some of these. Uh, Sanderson Door, my favorite card I have is my first one. Pat Verbeek, 84 Opeachy. Love it every time I look at it. 23 Aranis, uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, and everyone else is beneath. Like Ken said, MJ is the most collected athlete of all time. No doubt about that. Yeah, Sebastian says, MJ, Kobe, LeBron have massive marketing machines behind them. Kareem doesn't, so he doesn't get as much attention. Also, recency bias, shadow screen. Recency bias also is why also is kind of the thing that um that is why you will never hear me tell you to buy the hottest rookie of the day and i will never tell you what five rookies to buy cards of because it's recency bias and i don't i don't have recency bias I, as, a, as a collector slash investor in the, in the in the category i'll just make go, one quick comment on that one just because i think yeah it's a great, go ahead just go ahead really quickly cultural impact will long-term sustain if you value. I mean, and, and, you know, it's not about what someone just does on the court. It's how they play the game and how they touch people that matters. You know, Babe Ruth touched an entire nation. He was the first, uh, you know, person that was a household name to the level that he was. Mickey Mantle had a character, had a personality that just people were in love with. Uh, and, 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 and that, 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 character and charisma lives on to this day because he represents an entire era as much yeah. as Joe DiMaggio does the era before him. You know, yeah. that's why he's in, uh, you know, a Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, I mean, right. these people 
they they touch generations. Okay? They transcend the sport and they become Absolutely. culturally relevant and Absolutely. and they don't they some some of them don't even even Lou Alcindor, you know, even Kareem. Mm-hmm. You some some of these guys like I agree that he that there's that the he's not out there being marketed right now, but as we as collectors and sports fans appreciate the history of the sport those guys who are iconic they're not forgotten they're just they're just of course they're not as marketed and therefore maybe not as chaste as the lebron's kobe's mjs but they're still important and they are still collected heavily let's keep going let's keep going uh 23 Aaron to put in perspective mj built his empire in the era of cable tv newspapers magazines kobe and lebron had instant media attention they never got his Aaron's level of fan base great point let's keep going though appreciate that that's very astute brian shulman from clubhouse there can only be the first of something one time agree the only thing is when it is a massively produced uh uh issue then of course it's still the first i'm not i'm not disputing the 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 technical sentence here but it's not as attractive and that's why car rookie cars in the junk wax era are only recently starting to get more love because they're not being purchased based on their print run they're being purchased based on their populations which are still pretty high but they are being sold in a relatively they're they're being sold at relative values to um rarer cards can i say one thing really quick if you were to take the very first pair of levi jeans ever made in the world and it was in pristine condition i i would challenge you to go see what that's worth okay that was a mass-produced item but in rarity and and if you if you were to get it in pristine condition what that that did was that those levi jeans they set a trend that today made it a staple in clothing, okay? Yeah. So I can promise you, if you can go find the first issue ever pair of Levi jeans ever made, you'll pay a fortune for that. And that's why, and, and Chase, the reason why that's worth a fortune is the same reason why cards from like the, the, the vintage cards are mm-hmm. worth so much because we didn't care about them for condition. We wore our Levi, people when first Levi's jeans came, they were meant for one thing that was wearing. Right. Not Nobody collected them. So someone that has a... a Right, right. Uh, uh, like new old stock of that. Wow, like what a right. what a find. That's very rare. Just like it, just like there's only however many copies of a Honus Wagner out there, and and that yeah. kind of thing. Right, and I and I think that that 300 just isn't enough for the Jordan. And, and I agree. About that earlier, I just don't think it's enough to go around. Me neither. Hard, uh, I agree. That's, and my, I, that's my opinion. We've you and I. I think we had the conversation on Clubhouse a week or so ago where. I even think that there's a there's a possibility that there's a time in the future where 15,000 Luca PSA 10s isn't enough. And I know that's a crazy it all it's a crazy take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's that's, just all based on the size of the hobby and how big it gets. Exactly, exactly. Uh, all right, let's see what else we got here uh, in the call in the in the chat. I don't know if people are picking on you or they're just being funny. Why does Chase look so upset? I, I haven't noticed. Chase does look super nervous. Okay. Chase, how long have you been in the card market? We did. You did give us our, your origin story earlier. Um, but you, basically, you, you worked in a card shop uh, as a kid. Chase seems yeah. pretty knowledgeable. Great. Appreciate that. Um, Johnny B, uh, you guys are wrong. The first game used were not... UD, it was the 96 press pass set. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But to be honest, brand equity is extremely important as well. And press pass 
I just don't think has any. So it, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like just a moot point uh, from my from my perspective. Name says, man, this is a great combo. You guys, so much here. Foundations of being a collector, thinking about the hobbies and investment, hobby philosophies. Thank you, uh, name. Appreciate that. Johnny V, Upper Deck started autograph cards with pack. Yep, that's that's a well-known fact, Johnny. Thank you for uh, confirming. <laughs> yeah, relax, Chase. You're doing great. Do you know these people? No? Okay. Uh, maybe they're just trolling. I don't really know. Maybe. They might be. We'll, we'll ignore them. Uh, Colin says, I meant selling to me, not others. Good for me, but they are no longer collectors. Going to shows is important to a lot of people, but right now COVID is causing people to sell out mental health. Very fair comment. I, I hear that. And people need money too, right? Now's a great time to sell out for money. And Colin, Colin is a guy who who deals in cards. So, you know, selling out to you is a guy. I'm glad they're selling out to a guy like Colin because Colin will find them good homes. And I'm and Colin wouldn't be buying them if he didn't think he could move them. So I think that's very fair. Goes on to say, I do 40 shows a year with a bunch of other dealers and it's driving us crazy. I know, man. I, I do five shows a year. It's driving me crazy too. Sanders and Dora, an argument can be made that Nike's biggest athlete signing in their history was Lance Armstrong. So, Ayo Rhino, good evening. Welcome to the show. Son loves Damian Lillard. That's great here. Ken Golden says, inserts. First major auto insert, 1990 Upper Deck Reggie. First produced first produced based on autos, 92 Proline. First high-value auto inserts, 92 Force Sport. With very rare and limited shot. Yeah, that was the, the, I think that was you, Ken, that did uh, those ones. Colin Murray says Tiger Woods, not Lance. Okay. Yeah, they're trolling. Let's just block these clowns right now. Um, and we're going to block the other one too. Okay. Uh, where were we here? One second, guys, as I get myself uh, reoriented here. Yeah, Ken Gold, remember those well. Good stuff. Card collector appreciates what you're saying, Chase. That's wonderful. Sebastian says, I used to only focus on rookies. Eventually expanded to nicely designed standalone inserts, which are now my faves. Oh, hang Vegas Dave Fierce, Jeremy Lee. I don't think I'm on his radar, but I appreciate that. Card porn. Chase, have you looked at any other alternative assets in the same similar area like Top Shot? Yeah, you know, I've looked at it. And I think it's a it's a it's a fascinating like medium. I just here's my thought on Top Shot, and I'll try to be brief with it because I know it can become a long discussion. But uh, and I'll forsake yeah. a general schedule here. But I, be brief, look, I mean, please. Yeah. So within FT, actually, Chase, let let me let me interject. Let's not talk about Top Shot. Let's answer the question specifically. Have you looked at any? Have you let's just ask, have you looked at any other alternative assets and what? But just have you looked at them? Simple as that. Uh yes. Which ones? Anything other than Top Shot? I've, I've looked at yeah NFTs and Top Shot, um, cryptocurrency, uh, a lot of other alternative assets. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sports memorabilia uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I I, I think that um, cars are, the, are one of the most promising value propositions. As far as alternative, I see, and that that's mm -hmm. that's what I think that that's the question, and that's that's the answer. That's the question I wanted to ask you based on card porn's question is. Considering there are these other alternative assets on the, you know, basically built on the NFT foundation, if you will, the, the question I want to ask and talk about is sports cards or that stuff? Which one is the bet? Which one, in your opinion, is the better investment, the better use, the better use of deployment of your capital? I, I, I choose sports cards and for a number of reasons. One is I get more enjoyment out of it. That's 
primary, right? Number one, I think if you love something, it's easier to do it with a passion. It's either to, it's easy it's easy for it to fuel your the knowledge and the the work that you have to put in to do it right, and it becomes enjoyable in the process. That's number one. But number two, there's a 120 year history of collecting sports cards. I mean, we've been collecting cards since the late you know 1800s, and you know it's been an American pastime. There's cards in the Smithsonian Museum, you know, and 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 the Metropolitan right now. There's cards. So, you know, my my thought is, is that it's a piece of American history. And 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 I don't think that that's something that can be manufactured. You know, you can manufacture an NFT. You can't manufacture 120 years of collecting something. You can't manufacture nostalgia. Can't go back to 1986. Can't go back to 1952 and, and remake something that we've lived with for many years and images that are, you know, burned in our brains. So yeah. that has value to me. I think that there's a safety within that uh, floor, so to speak, that doesn't exist with things that are manufactured overnight. And that was like what Ken was alluding to about grading card companies. I know it's a different subject, but again, you can't manufacture stuff like that overnight. Now, is there opportunity? Absolutely. There's absolutely opportunity in, in it, but I think 99% of it will not be. Uh, just like sports cards, by the way, you know, 99.9999 to the infinite nine of sports cards almost are not worth anything that have ever been produced. Okay. Yep. Only a small, tiny fraction of them sustained the test of time. And it'll be the same with those markets as well. And I don't believe in things you can't actually own. Um, and so there's a lot of questions with NFTs and actual ownership that I have a problem with. Not all of them, not all of them, but some, but a lot of them. Okay, good. Let's move on. We got some good comments coming in here. Um, I want to get, uh, I see three I really like here. We're going to start with Ken Goldens. He says, Chase, uh, number one, thank you for the kind words. Number two, what is your personal year where you define vintage versus modern? And I'm going to answer it too. Ken, if you want me to or not, I'm going to take it too. Okay, sir, you want to go first? Or you want me to no, go? you go first. He asked you. Yeah, so I consider, um, if for, I'm a basketball guy, right? So I consider the, you know, the, the, I consider the 86 player to be vintage, you know, and I think everything kind of post when we went in from out of eighties into the nineties became modern cards. And I look at the birth of, you know, certain sets in 93 in particular as kind of the, the, the birth of modern basketball uh, cards. And so, you know, the 93 tops finest set, the 96 tops Chrome set, all of the stuff that kind of was birthed in the 90s, the, 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 the you know, of course, the metal sets, um, you know, all of that stuff, the, the early upper deck patch autos, that to me was the transition. But I could still consider um, the 80s cards. And why? Why do I define it that way um, for basketball? Is because when we went from, for, for, from photography being the primary focus, focal point of the card, to something where the actual texture of the card, the actual design of the card became uh, the, one of the primary selling mechanisms of the value of the card and technology. When technology was introduced, that added an element of appeal just as much as the photography and just as much as the player on it, as well as rarity of the issue. That created a new element that was basically the birth of, of modern, in my opinion. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the tops, 96 tops Chrome set is a perfect example of that. It's not just the, the Chromium cards. It's the introduction of the refractor technology yeah. that now becomes yeah. Silver Prism today, right? Or Chrome-based cards today. I mean, that started with, you know, with, with this set right here, right? These, these, these cards. So that, that's why I think they're important. Yeah, yeah so 
I mean, I think I think you're you're in. You know, you you didn't pick a specific year, but you gave a range, and I think that's how it has to be for me. For me, it depends on the sport, but for me, it's between 1988 and 1990. It's in there. You know, in in hockey, to me, it's like 1990. It's when Upper Deck first came out, and, and we saw Upper Deck and Score and Pro Set come out with cards for the first time. In in baseball, the last event. Yeah, for baseball, 1990 is the first year of modern. 89 is the first year of vintage. And I know some people think it's earlier, but that's for me. The other thing that I use to distinguish between the two is when the wax pack sort of not went away completely, but when the new wrapping was introduced and when there wasn't as when the gum didn't be wasn't a, a part of the, the, the whole package anymore. You know, sure, there was gum into the 90s, but there was also foil packs and plastic packs and that sort of thing. So to me, Depending on the sport, 89 is the first year of modern for baseball. 90 is the first year of modern for hockey. And then basketball, somewhere in that exact range, and football as well. That's where I am. Okay, let's keep going. Sanderson to Orr. Preach, Chase. Great. Thank you for that. Because, <laughs> you know, you're, 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 you're putting out some great stuff, man. I do appreciate your insights, and I think it's a, it's a great perspective. Stephen Ho says... Uh, with Chase's technology background, please chat about the impact on cards from auction houses accepting crypto, i.e. golden auctions. I'm not a guy that dabbles in uh, crypto. I'm interested in it. I'm more interested in the technology that under underlies it. But And I might be missing the boat. But Chase, I want you to, to take Stephen's question, please. Well, I can't allude it to tonight. There is a lot of crypto multi-multi-millionaires and their money is in that is stored in that value. So for them to have to exit that investment, cash out of it, have implications for that in terms of how they run their books and whatnot, and then have to put it back into a sports card. And there's just a lot more work involved in that. It creates a barrier, right, to somebody pulling the trigger. And I think that allowing the access of somebody to seamlessly um, put Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency into cards is huge. I mean, I get offers all the time from Bitcoin guys on big cards, like that they want to pay in Bitcoin, you know? And that's, you know, someone has to be willing to accept that, okay, I'm going to take this as a store of value, but I'm going to have to deal with a volatile store of value. More volatile maybe than, than the dollar, but maybe it's more beneficial. But then the person accepting it has to be either pro or con wanting to accept that, right? With Ken, what he's doing is he's allowing people that option and willing to accept that, right? And take that. And so I think it's huge because it just opens up you know, tons of buyers that are sitting on, you know, a lot of times, you know, a low cost basis and a ton of, a ton of value. In, in yeah. crypto. And so if they can convert it to sports cards, it's, it's a great thing. Okay. A yeah. couple of, couple of comments here that I just strongly agree with from Dave. He says, great, great show. I, of course I agree with great show. Thanks Dave. He says, I disagree with this sense of narrative out there that kids have to be involved in the hobby in order for it to grow goes on to say cards are similar to art i'm also positive art collectors couldn't care less about getting kids involved with their endeavors or even rely on them for sustained growth well, like this well, is can i say something really quick on yeah, that? Please. No, the, art, the art community does a lot to get kids involved they, they bring kids to museums they teach they teach art appreciation at pretty much every major university and every major uh every major school in america i mean people we've done a we've done a ton of work in our culture to make sure people understand what art is and made it a part of our curriculum in school. Um, and you know, but let, me, let me jump in because on, at this, on the same vein, yeah. you go, every kid that goes to every school right. has physical education class. They're outside sure. at recess, kicking balls around, hitting, mm -hmm. hitting baseballs, getting on skates, 
whatever it may be. So I look at that as the parallel. And, and so to me, that doesn't necessarily convert those kids into sports card collectors, just like going to the museum and appreciating the art may not convert them into art collectors, but certainly it makes them fans of the, of the space and of the mediums. Well, yeah, but I would argue that like your introduction to physical education is a basis for you to understand that, hey, it's important to be physical. It's important to exercise. It's important to understand nutrition. These are things you can take with you. What they're trying to do with art is, is educate people on why art's important. And they teach you in art like, you know, this is it. This artist is important because they created a movement that led to this. And this artist is important because what they did was, uh, you know, led to this. And they talk about the significant impacts of all this and how it impacted ideas in our society and culture, et cetera. I have to tell you that same story exists for sports cards. It may not be as important to our overall, you know, humanity or whatever you could argue, but there is a, there's a card history, right. Of importance. And I look at cards and I look at the lineage of cards in the same manner that you would look at art history. That's how I look at it. But yeah. you know, that's just me. But I, I, and I would I would think that kids these days, I mean, there's more kids interested. And this is the guess. I haven't done a survey, but I would think there's more kids interested in sports, playing them, watching them than there are interested in art. I, but I, I still hear what Dave is saying. I mean, I you know, sh the, the art collectors aren't the ones that are putting kids in museums and all that. They're collecting art. They have the steady flow of people interested in art coming just it's an organic feed of people, just like sports fans and sports and, and all of the different um, merchandise that is related to sports has that natural feed of kids coming through who are watching sports with their parents, playing sports uh, in as extracurricular activities. Let's let's move along, though. Yep. I think it's great. Great discussion. Uh, Toa says uh, sports movies and entertainment are all billion dollar industries that have no virtual way to invest other than cards and nfts that is now its stock market and it's why it's here to stay sebastian do you want to do you want anything to respond to that one um sports and entertainment have no virtual way to invest other than cards and nfts uh yeah i mean i think you know that cards allow people to invest in 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 the brands that they believe in and i think that's what we're talking about here i mean all these guys are brands jordan kobe lebron are brands Tops Chrome's a brand, uh, uh, National Treasures is a brand, you know, uh, Exquisite is a brand. I mean, these are brands and these players are brands. And I think that, you know, it's a way for people to pay homage to the people that they love, but also like invest in what they think will stand the test of time, just like people do in other collectible markets, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you could, now you can go and now you can go invest in, in shares of Tops if you, if that excites you, I'd rather have the cards that they're making. Yeah. Um, Sebastian says it will be interesting to see how NFTs mature right now. Oversaturation is a short-term threat to the broader market, but long-term some will be huge in their returns. I mean, I didn't want, I just don't want to talk about NFTs because any much more than the comments interesting, but I mean, I just don't understand it enough. And um, I've never really even seen one, to be honest. Like I, I've seen Top Shot and I've seen that one that sold for 70 million, but yeah. that's it. Otherwise, I think it's it's really it's one of these things that it's going to take time to mature to a point where the cream rises to the top. I think, but let's keep going. Yeah. Ken, okay, Ken answers his own question personally. Nineteen seventy nine, GA business so Golden Auctions business nineteen eighty five company con company considers I would say eighty six is the start of modern. So, yeah, I've heard people say that, but to right, me, too. 
Yeah. And is that because of that? That's when basketball cards came back. But if you look at football, baseball, hockey, I mean, what was different between 85 and 86? And that, and I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing other than Fleer started in 86. Yeah, I mean, the look and the feel of the card feels like like the vintage stuff. But I think that I have heard people like, – I've heard people say the 86 is the start of modern, and I've heard it's like like kind of like the last of the vintage, you know, and I've heard that same argument. But to me personally, like I think it has some of the same qualities that vintage had because it's primarily focused on photography, right? It's It's got a lot of those elements that, uh, you know, a lot of those other cards have. Um, doesn't have like kind of the technology that some of the newer cards did. But it, what it did do is it was the birth of – a new, uh, I, I guess, a new era in terms of Michael Jordan really supporting and driving the 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 modern card market. I mean, literally, like, let's just talk about the products that came out in the '90s, right? All that product was he really supported the hobby. I mean, Michael but, Jordan, but he's only he's he's only one sport, right? I want I'd right. rather I, I can't look at basketball and say right. because Michael Jordan's no, you know sure. mainstream rookie came out in '86 that started modern. I want to look at the whole hobby, like the four yeah. major sports Absolutely. and see what, what changed, what changed in the way they were bought, their look and feel the packaging. Mm -hmm. I don't know what changed from 85 to 86. That's why to me, we have a bigger, uh, a, a bigger change in things in in 89 and 90 than we did in 86. Well, I remember that. I remember just oil packs, right? Before, everything was wax before, right? Like wax and like that, just the technology of it, you're opening up a foil pack, right? That was kind of like in my mind, and I know this sounds, maybe it's arbitrary to a lot of people, but in my mind, just the foil pack itself was like and a the modern thing. Stock. As you, yeah, the cardstock changed. The cardstock too, but you remember the early, the, the upper deck Griffey, it came in that of like, course. that foil, the foil pack. pack. And it had the hologram on the back. Those little things, right, were like huge, at yeah. the time, right? Like it was just different. It didn't feel the same as the other stuff. Right. There was nothing revolutionary to me that changed from 85 to 86 uh, or from 79 to 80. Some people or some people consider 72. Right. I just, you know, right. to me, nothing really changed uh, from the collector's standpoint until right. 1989 with Upper Deck and the foil packaging and the new card right. stock and the hologram on the back and all that. Let's keep going. Like this was 93, right? And this 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 stuff right here has like that 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 glossy kind of image on the card, right? Like you started to see that kind of uh this this the, the backs of the cards, right, started to look so different. The packaging, right, the holograms, like everything was different. And then you got a couple years later and you're into this kind of product, right? And this stuff was just like on another level. Uh, with you know this is the first time you know obviously you had anything that looked like this with serial yeah. numbers and then oh, of man. course the refractor and the chromium technology i mean you know i mean that's what kind of what kind of you know spawned all of that you know yeah i'm with you i'm with you okay few let's run through some comments sanders endorses no question it's 90 for hockey no more cardboard I, I'm 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 there. Uh, Sebastian, vintage for me is pre 1980 for basketball. And I'm just going to say, as a final comment on this vintage modern uh, difference, is we we're all entitled to what we think. There's no right or wrong here. I really don't think there's right or wrong. Ken Golden, as the chairman of Golden Auctions, can decide for no, but it's legit. legit. He can decide for Golden what they where where they draw the line. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with him. I'm not gonna say you're wrong, Ken. I'm not for me. It's just a different time, but it makes no difference in my life or as a collector. What Golden Auction says is vintage, or what Chase says is vintage, or what 
or what uh, Sebastian says is vintage. It doesn't matter. We can all think what we want. It's the beauty of the hobby. We all approach it our own way. Right. Card Collector says, I could listen to Chase talk cards all day again. Greatly appreciate it. You're pretty good too, Jeremy. Thank you, Card Collector. Thanks. Name says these valuable hobby insights are called Chaseisms. I love that. Sanderson to Orr says, that's why my kid has an art class in school. Very fair. Sanderson to Orr, you are in a timeout now. You're definitely in trouble with me. I'm just kidding, of course. Sebastian says, art and sports are intertwined in our culture's very deep roots. We like owning pieces of history, art, sports cards. They tell a story, era-specific history, cultural design. Boom, I agree with that 100%. That's why I love it. It's, it documents history. It allows us to own history. Terry Fortune, my students talk to me about sports and cards, not art. I mean, fair, fair comment. Corey Carr, I saw an interesting debate online. What's the most recognizable card to the general public? 86 Jordan or 52 Mantle? I don't know. I'm going to assume it's the 52 Mantle, but I mean, it's like I'm, I'm on the fence. To me, the most iconic card in the hobby is the Jordan. I really believe that. But I the mean, Mantle um, I think it's is right uh, there. Yeah, I think it's era specific. I mean, I think that for people grow, that grew up in our generation with what we, with MJ changed, I mean, come on, like MJ really globalized basketball. He changed, you know, well, he, he reached, he reached a, a magnitude of an athlete that we never thought imaginable. And so on you know, a global basis, right. But from a card standpoint, I mean, the Mickey Mantle image and it's like second to none. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's beyond words, that card's beauty. I agree. However, yeah, the Jordan, though, you have to understand. I mean, Mickey Mantle is popular in America, and he's really popular in New York City. No doubt about it, right? Outside of America, when you go to China, you go, you travel around the world, like, you know, you go to different places. I mean, Michael Jordan is a global icon. At one point, he was one of the most recognizable, I think the most recognizable person on planet Earth for a few years. I mean, a mind-boggling statistic. I mean, you can go to Africa in the middle of the jungle, you'll see people in a Jordan, you know, t-shirt. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane how, how like, how, how, um, how big his brand is. So that's, you the marketing, him, that's a lot of that is, is due to the marketing at Nike yeah. and, uh, right. and just, he's, he's larger than life. It, it, it just is what it is. Right. I mean, that's why I, I don't, I mean, it's, I almost don't want to have to choose between the two cards as most iconic. I think they're both, most iconic in their own ways. It is era based, and Ken makes a really good comment coming up that we'll get to. Um, let's do uh, a hockey guy says uh, cards themselves are art for what it's worth. Yeah, I agree. Terry says some enjoy art too, but more into fantasy sports and stats. Toa says, I think the starting point for kids in the hobby may be starting later in the teens than adolescence. I agree. There are so many teens between 13 and 20 that have joined especially from the shoe hype good point and ken says a good argument can also be made uh 1996 is the start of modern as it represents the end of the junk wax era but this is the lot this is the part i like the most a lot depends on how old the evaluator is but here's that's what i agree with completely but i also want to say why does there have to be one break i believe there are more than one break i so yeah, yeah i think i think it's a good point because you know, like there, there, it was an evolution leading up to 96. Cause like I said, you had products, like I'm just using examples like this ultra, but it was still sort of mass produced. Right. And the inserts were somewhat rare, but not crazy rare. But when you got to stuff like this, I mean, this product was expensive. I mean, at the time, I mean, at the time, like, you know, for you to pay $150 uh, for a box um, of this stuff was, was, was like crazy high at the hobby at the time. I mean, charging 20, $30 a pack, for this at the time was like astronomical. 
mean, yeah. you remember an exquisite box was like 500 bucks when it came out. So, you know, this was the beginning of a luxury product, right? And in the space, I mean, these were luxury products and that didn't exist before. What made it luxury? Well, the design was super intricate, you know, and the technology was brand new, refractor technology, right? In the case of this, it was serial numbered inserts for the first time. Um, but, you know, that created uh, an element where, you know, the cars had an art form. They had technologies that had never been seen before. And that kind of carried over to what we have today, right? The, the, the serial number card yeah, started yeah. here. The refractor technology, which is silver prism, started here. And you can go on and on and on in that era. Is that, is that why you have those boxes? Because they're the, they're no, the I first- No, I have a bunch uh, of stuff here. I got a bunch of, I mean, this is like 03. I mean, I just have a bunch of, I've been buying different stuff and it just, it's, it's, it's all over the place. <laughs> Man, I'd love to bust that open with you one day. Okay, yeah. let's let's run through. Card porn says wants to talk about grading, and, and we'll address this, but I don't want to get into grading too much right now. But let's answer the question with PSA and BGS uh closed or closing for new submissions, other than really high end. What do you think is the best alternative? Keep raw or wait. Sorry, keep raw and wait, or try some someone new. I mean, for me, it's 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 uh keep raw and wait. That's a no-brainer for me. What about you, Chase? Yeah. Uh, it's a no brainer for me. Uh, I would yeah. look, I mean, you're, you, when you invest in a, in a brand, like we're talking about these sets or brands, I mean, PSA and BGS are brands and yeah, that's what you're investing. I mean, we're talking about condition here, conditions based on the expert grading that condition and what, what, what makes them an expert? Well, there's a long history of BGS and PSA, the grading standards that they have, the process that they have, their brand equity. That's what you're getting. That's what you're paying for. That's what people want. That's what dictates the value later on when you sell it. And to bypass that or, you know, to just because you want something in a slab, I mean, you're not going to fool anybody like like and, that's that's serious, yeah. you know. And, and just to keep it real, all of this, despite the fact that they have made mistakes along the way. I mean, we have to recognize that. And yeah, I mean, but I have to say, despite, because someone's going to put in the comments. Yeah, but they've done this and that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, whatever, you know, the, 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 the margin of error is still going to be lower with those companies than with um, the less experienced, I would think. But anyway, to answer the question. Millions and millions and millions of cards. And if they can yeah. find a handful of examples here and there over the years of things that have gotten through the cracks, well, you know, I mean. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. It's a no-brainer, card porn. Uh, Daniel says, it's nice seeing celebrities getting excited about the hobby and being vocal about it. This bodes well. This bodes very well for today's youth and the future of this amazing hobby. I think so, and I hope you're right, Daniel. Currency Project says, thank you, Chase. Well said. Art and sports, plenty of great parallels in contemporary culture. Uh, D. Nick, the one, says, how about the fact that 1986 isn't even MJ's rookie year, LOL? I can jump on, I can jump on this really quick. So it's true that that's uh, – but we also have a lineage in cards that we have to follow, Right. So we have to follow that a true rookie card is something that's licensed by the NBA and pack pulled. Okay. That's what we, we, that's one of the definitions of what we, what people and that true hobbyist will define as a true rookie card. Also too, you could say the same thing about mantle, right? The Bowman was his first card, but not nearly as iconic or as beautiful as the, as the tops, which has always been the coveted version and has always been the one that's commanded the highest values. Now, should the Bowman be worth nothing? Absolutely not. Should it be worth more or in proportion to the tops probably so and should the star probably so but no one can deny 
that number one, it's pack pulled and it's officially licensed NBA product um, pack pulled, not like the star, which was a bag given out at a game. It doesn't follow the traditional distribution model of a sports card. Second, just like the Bowman, most people feel like the image of Jordan getting a rebound in a basketball game is not nearly as iconic as him flying through the air with his tongue out you know, dunking a basketball above everybody else on the ground. I mean, there's big differences with the cards. If you love the star and you just want to own, you know, something that was produced in his in his rookie year that was given out at a game uh, in a team bag, then that's great. There's nothing great. Against, I have nothing against the card. I think the card's awesome too. It's like, but it's like you said earlier, the Fleer Jordan, the image, it's too good to be true. It, it's it's absolutely perfect. But the other thing, I have a new take on the star card because I used to be, I wasn't against it, but I just wasn't interested. Now I think, listen, as a collector, you choose what's important to you. And if that card is important to you, own it. For me, it's become more important to me now as I've learned more about the card. And I'm actually, but it doesn't replace the 86 Fleer to me. To me, the 86 Fleer is the RC and the, and the 80, the 84 star 101 to me is a beautiful, uh, complimentary unique card that i would put right beside it and be very proud to own both but to me um the jordan the fleer is the rookie card even though it's not his rookie year well I know also, it's weird, one last thing on it when you invest in a card you're also investing in a set in a set's lineage and how important that set is uh and you know no one can deny that the 86 fleer set fueled collectors during the time period through in the, in the late 80s but mainly early 90s those cards were highly sought after people really wanted them it was considered you know the 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 blue chip issue of a basketball set um and and no one can take that away from it i mean regardless or or not a lot of people wanted to own those cards when we were kids many many people it was on the cover of beckett i mean it has nostalgia it has uh that seed of want planted in a lot of people so, but you know, yeah. like you said, it wasn't pack pulled in a in the way that sports cards are traditionally pack pulled. The and the other yeah. thing is, you can't go back and find unopened wax of it. To me, if it didn't come out of a case in a box, and you know where you you open the top and tucked it in and put it on your display counter, it's yeah. just not the traditional. It doesn't it doesn't align with tradition. Which we, which go ahead. Absolutely, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, part of the the, the joy of sports cards is ripping. And that's what like what Ken does with his son and all that, that those, this, those things that's at the core of sports card collecting. Cause at the core of it, you know, we used to, we used to open this, the, the, these boxes when we were kids and get that joy and the wonderment and the mystery of what's inside this, what am I going to get? Am I going to get lucky enough to, to, and, and that, you know, that aspect, that little part of the hobby where, you know, you're like winning the lottery by getting, your dream card is something magical and that's part of our hobby it's part of the way we distribute our cards so agreed man agreed okay it's it's getting late i want to run through some more questions here but great i thank you to the chat uh for the for the really good interaction and chase's uh chase's response is um like 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 name said that the chasisms are on fire tonight um i want jahan thank you very much you're probably not hearing this because you're behind and catching up but great thank you for the comment uh, as he says here just starting this 
Uh, Name says, Chase did say earlier, cards are not a commodity. They are a create, they're creative works of intellectual property that can, and that can mean art, thinking, perspectives, et cetera, very well said. I will say though, I do consider some cards to be commodity cards and those are the mass produced, you know? So cards as an overall thing, I, yeah. ah, I let's not get into that right now. Cause I, I don't, let's not get into the, the commodity discussion. Let's just not get into it. Cause I can yeah. go off. On sure. That. Sure. Um, Colin Murray picked up a mantle today. Congratulations, Colin. That sounds, uh, that's pretty cool. Sanderson says Ali was so big in the day that he went to Africa. He went to Africa. A war was put on hold. Like that's, that's a big deal right there. Yeah. Jason says different eras and it's different for the different sports. I agree. I agree. Vic Rio says, I think finest was the hobby king back then. They're, they are the king of refractors. Cardporn likes the answers to his question. Thank you, Cardporn. Glad that you do. Jason says 52 isn't Mantle's rookie year either. No, it isn't. And I, but the other thing is that it, it's not really considered as rookie card. People just assume it is and therefore call it as rookie. But nobody who knows for sure refers to it as a rookie card. Like it, it, it's just one of those more of a vernacular type of thing than it is um, a, a, something that anybody believes to be technically correct. But good comment, Jason. Agree with that. Brian says, Vic, the only thing that hurt finest basketball was the rookie class versus tops. Chrome has three rookie class, has top three rookie class in basketball. Sound, sounds very fair. Brian says, star grade for grade is more valuable than FLIR. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. I mean, it is what it is, right? And that's a rarity thing too. I think they're they're just a rarer card than Absolutely. the flu. I know they're rarer than the clear. Yeah, there's also the the thing about the star too is that there's not to get in a big tangent about it, but there's also an element of the, the, the originally the owner reprinted the card of the that, that owned the company, and that created a problem. Or that's why PSA stopped creating them because it became very difficult to tell the difference, and that scares off a lot of buyers, a lot of people because they don't want to really mess with a card that kind of has uh, this distinguish, this distinguishing element that it can't be graded by PSA because of the fact there's so many counterfeits. Now, if PSA starts to grade the star again, though, which could very well happen, maybe that'll help, you know, boost the image of it. And again, you know, like Ken was saying today, I mean, Nat's a very astute business person, you know, and so um, the way I think he would probably approach that is this, um, there is a way we can tell the difference. It just it involves technology and involves education, involves data, but you know, maybe yeah. not, I don't know, speculation. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're almost at the end of the comments, which means we can almost get to the end of the show because we're over we're two hours, 10 minutes. So let's just run through these. Uh, Vic says the 84 star, they didn't know what MJ was yet. Very true. Colin affirms that the 51 Bowman is his rookie, though the 52 tops is his first tops card, which is still very important. Of course, as far as hobby tradition goes, uh, that's why the rebound pick. Yes, for sure. Carson Cruz says what happened to tops basketball from 83 to 92? Is that around the time of the beginning of trying to monopolize licenses? I don't know the answer to that. I guessing you do you know what, what happened? To to top basketball. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, from what they, I understand is that the, the, they really just um, basketball went through a period, a lull period where they just weren't like the copy shops couldn't sell basketball. You know, um, it wasn't until you know, even when the 86 set came out, it was convenience stores and a lot of things like that. that were distributing it. Basketball. We were a baseball card hobby. I mean, you have to understand the older collectors, the guys that like when we were kids that were actually adults collecting cards, spending big money. They wanted vintage baseball. That's what drove the the, the big capital in the market. 
the evolution of Michael Jordan and being such a popular athlete that he literally brought people in to basketball away from baseball was really a huge, huge deal because we wouldn't really have all these guys with basketball collections on Instagram today, probably that weren't brought in because MJ popularized it and made it just like, you know, I mean, who would be collecting golf cards if Tiger Woods didn't come out? I mean, let's be quite would honest. There, would there even be golf cards since the 84 Don Russ, uh, if it wasn't for Right. And, this, and to LeBron's credit too, in 03, he revitalized the, the hobby. Yeah. Was really um, the springboard that allowed Upper Deck and all these companies to put this plethora of product out in the market. So he has a he definitely has a has his own place and the importance of sports card demand, right? So the, all these guys were key components. And I'll just to throw Kobe in the mix. I mean, he kind of carried the torch in between. You know, I mean, when when Jordan left, I mean, the, 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 that's why the '96 Chrome was so key. Is like you know, Kobe kind of came in the market, and you know, as Jordan was kind of exiting, Kobe was still there, and he kind of was part of that too. But no one obviously was as impactful as LeBron was to introducing your product or Jordan was to bringing people in. I mean, For sure. Yeah, I agree with that. D-Nick says, uh, great points and great takes. Thank you, D-Nick. Appreciate that. Toa wants to know, says, content has been awesome tonight. Great discussions. Will there be a late night clubhouse? I mean, we got to end this pretty quick if I'm going to get onto clubhouse for a little bit. Uh, you guys are going to get divorced. Yeah, exactly. This is great stuff, guys. I've listened to most of your shows, Jeremy, and Chase is my favorite guest you've had on. That's high praise, Chase. That is very high praise. Thank you so much. Absolutely Perfect. loving this episode. Appreciate it. Chase. Terry Fortune, does Chase have any hockey cards? Well, I I know you. I'm going to answer this one for you because yeah. Chase, we had a conversation on Clubhouse a week ago, and Chase, he asked me specifically, I want to buy a hockey card. What should I buy, the Wayne Gretzky rookie or the Bobby Orr rookie? Right. And I, I forget what my final answer was because it's kind of like personal preference. Yeah. Probably the Gretzky, I said. But did you have you made a decision? Yeah, I'm probably leaning towards the Gretzky. Although I love the Bobby Orr, I, I've been looking at Gretzky's right now though, and I love the Orr because when I was a kid, I remember that card. I mean, I remember looking yeah. at images of that card, over, especially in hobby shops. And it's funny how when you go to hobby shops as a kid and you see these cards, they get ingrained in your brain as something that you want because people, yeah. you know, really just revel in how, you know, how important they are. And it, it stands in your mind. And I just remember that image on that card and kind of always gravitating towards it for some reason, but the Gretzky is Gretzky. I mean, we all know what Gretzky did. For sure. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm going to wrap, we're going to wrap this up guys. We're getting called into clubhouse right now. I'm going to run through these final comments guys. Last call for comments. We're going to end this like in, in 60 seconds. Carson Cruz says, thanks for answering my question. I started collecting 88. Uh, always look for 86 Flare Pack, but the oldest I ever found was 86 and 87 from baseball. Name says, agreed. Chase is so good at this that he had trolls on his very first guest appearance. Chris from House of Jordan says, nice work, guys. Come over to Clubhouse. It's Clubhouse time. I agree. Colin says, golf was just as important. Tiger didn't start golf cards. Yeah, of course. Comment. Uh, Brian's in for a brief clubhouse. Sanderson Dor says Bobby Orr is the pick. Uh, Colin says doesn't sound like it. I'm not sure what that's in relation to. Sorry, Colin. Toa says I'm also the go-to guy. They call I'm also for the great one. 23 Aaron is we show up here every Saturday night, and I don't think we give enough props to Jeremy for all the work it takes to set up these interviews and research Absolutely. needed before the show starts. Thank you. Thank you, uh, 23 Aaron. I appreciate yeah, Jeremy, that. Yeah, you do an amazing job, man. Thank you so much. For Thanks, Chase. I, I appreciate that. Uh, Terry uh, Sanderson Dora calls out the USA test version, which is not where I would put my. I mean, it's a great card, but it's 
it's kind of a, a, a bit of an oddball card, if you will. Uh, thank you, Terry, very much. 23 minutes. We didn't even see any of Chase's cards. Show one card, Chase, please. One okay, card. One card. Uh, I'm just going to pick one that's on the top. This is one of my favorite cards on top. Love expensive it. card. Yeah, oh, no. Everybody can probably the back. Forward and go by. But why I love it, I think it's one of the coolest photographs in the history of all sports. And it says everything you need to know just by looking at it. I mean, Bo was a, was probably the greatest athlete to ever live, um, you know, maybe all around. And obviously football, baseball. Show the back. Oh, oh the back. Yeah, yeah I love the back. Yeah, I, I love I, the back. I didn't want to, like, just rip an expensive card out here. I, I think it's just something that, like, you know, reminds me that, like, there's still great affordable pieces out yes. there for everybody in the hobby, no matter what your price range is. And this guy has checks every box for me. I mean, obviously, he didn't have – you know, the, but his cultural, I mean, he didn't have the, the career that a lot of guys did in each sport, but his cultural impact was second to none. And, yeah. you know, he was awesome. So. And the back is very cool. Uh, thank you, name. Appreciate that. Card Collector, the goat of shows. This is one of the best things. Thank you, Card Collector 1982. All right. That's it, guys. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Awesome chat tonight. Chase, I'll see you in Clubhouse. Uh, I don't know what room yet, but I'm sure we'll find each other. Everybody Absolutely. else. Thanks for hey, the great. evening. Thanks for Jeremy, thanks so much for having me on. And thanks, Ken, for the kind words. It was an amazing guest tonight. And I just want to, again, I want to second whoever said, you know, you do an amazing job. I mean, just thanks, putting man. these shows on, the preparation, everything you're doing. You're, you know, everybody should do their part in the hobby. And you're certainly, I mean, what you're doing really is great. And I just appreciate it. So thank you. I appreciate the kind words, Chase. I really do. It means a lot. Uh, thank you so much, everybody else. And uh, thanks to Ken Golden again, if you're still there listening. Ken, I, you're probably, hopefully you're sleeping by now. But thanks to Ken. Thanks to Chase for joining. I knew you'd be a great follow-up uh, after Ken. And as as Chris said last night, Ken sets the, the, the first guest sets the stage for after hours. So you certainly, uh, you certainly filled the role tonight, Chase. Thank you so much. All right. That's it, guys. See you all in, in Clubhouse later on in this week. If not, we'll see you back here next Saturday. Have a great week ahead. See ya. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.